Matthew Broderick, a pickpocket who thought that anything was better than prison. Little did he know what he'd escaped from wasn't half as strange or frightening as what he'd stumbled into. I do not believe what I believe, Lord. These are magical, unexplainable matters, and I beg you not to make me a part of them. Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What do they get right? What do they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah Ifchdecker, a medieval historian, and today I'm joined by Ari Ryan Aileen, otherwise known as the Turnip of Terror, to talk about 1985 film Lady Hawk. So Ari, welcome. Hi, how are you doing? Good, good. How are you? I'm fantastic. I'm excited to be here. Excited to have you. So why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and about why you wanted to talk about this particular film? As the Turnip of Terror, I do a lot of medieval living history and reenactment, as well as trying to make sure that the entire community itself is operating at a higher standard of authenticity mm-hmm. and, and reliability of information. When you start from ground zero, a lot of people can make a terrible number of mistakes, which we'll actually yeah. notice here in our visual, <laughs> in the visuals of the movie mm-hmm. we're going to watch. And so that's what I do mostly online. I myself like to reenact the late 14th century, early 15th century. My impression, as we call it, you know, you have, you create a whole, you don't necessarily create a persona, but you create a portrayal of somebody who could plausibly have existed in the time period you want to represent. And we can call that an impression. Mm-hmm. And so my impression is generally of the lower gentry in England. My personal impression is obviously from the, the Western uh, side of England near Wales, but I obviously have a interest in sort of pan-European medieval history just as a recreation. So I am not an expert in anything in particular. I'm not, none of my professional qualifications overlap my hobbies in even the most stretchy of tangential ways. But <laughs> I like to have an authentic living history impression, and I like to help other people get there. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of what I like to do. But when it comes to why did I ask to do this movie, it's just because it's one of those movies that I remember from my childhood that kindled my love for the mm-hmm. the medieval genre. And then that obviously is yeah. part of the foundation that led to wanting to do something that was a little more historically grounded, which this movie mm-hmm. has a lot of unintentional historical groundings, as well as a ton, right. a ton of some run of the mill medieval tropes and myths. So it's interesting. Yes. And I think a lot of the historical authentic stuff that I, I found in it, is, I can actually retroactively apply. So I don't think they intended to be accurate in a certain ways that they ended up actually being, which is always funny. There's always little things here and there every now and then it's like, oh, well, we're going to reference the plague and we're going to reference the Crusades as though this definitely all happened sort of at the same time. And it's like, mm, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so this movie itself doesn't say when it's set. It's just sort of generic, no. sort of medieval-ish. And they don't they don't actually figure out where they're supposed to be or anything like that. But I think I think I have dated the movie itself specifically. I can't say why until we go through the movie because I don't want to... L- spoil it for anybody but i am fairly confident that this movie takes place on or at least the very end of it so the the movie itself leads up to january 1st 1386 so the whole the bulk of the movie we're watching okay is set in 1385 the very end of 1385 and the final 
scene, the ending of the movie is January 1st, 1386. And we'll build on why I got there, but I have a fairly detailed okay. plan to get there. Okay, I look forward to hearing that. Lady Hawk, which I actually have n- had not seen before. This was my very first watch of this awesome. film, although it has been re- uh, recommended to me and requested on the podcast a number of times. Came out in 1985, stars a baby Matthew Broderick as Philippe Gaston or the mouse. He is so small and so young. He actually is in his 20s, but easily could be playing younger. Also, Rutger Hauer as Etienne of Navarre, and Michelle Pfeiffer as Isabelle d'Anjou, Leo McKern as Imperius, John Wood as the Bishop of Aquila, and Ken Hutchison as Captain Marquet, and Alfred Molina as Cesar, who this is, I feel like this is a sort of like odd role for Alfred Molina. He's like really not a very big character. I kind of expected Alfred Molina to be more important than he was. Yeah, he kind of comes and goes. Yeah. But I really did love his appearance. Not that I had any idea who he was the first couple times I watched this movie, but I like the way he does his role quite a bit. Yeah. I'm going to start with a just very brief orienting recap, which is going to go ahead and uh, spoil some amount of the film, but we'll uh, get into more details as we go into the movie. After escaping from the dungeons of the Bishop of Aquila, a young thief known as Mouse becomes embedded in a story of love, magic, and vengeance. The bishop, who was in love with Isabeau d'Anjou, had cursed her and her lover Etienne of Navarre such that she would be a hawk during the day and he a wolf at night so that they are always together yet always separated. The mouse, along with the monk Imperius, who had once betrayed the couple, helps them to find a way to defeat the bishop and break the curse. We start with seeing the hawk itself and the music of this movie is so 80s. I love the music. So when you go online, you see how divisive the music of this movie is. And I thought it was wonderful because there is something about a clearly fantasy movie that by default gives you a suspension of belief. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, we're going to talk about his, the things that were historically authentic and the things that, that were not clearly not medieval. But it, we also have to say that this is a shape-changing fantasy fairy tale. So you got to give it a little bit of slack and I'm perfectly acceptable giving as much slack to 80s synth in an 80s fantasy movie as I am to modern pop songs in vaguely medieval modern Disney movies. So I think it was amazing and they could have called this movie Laser Hawk with the way that that hawk always shows up (laughs) to synth music and I just found it delightful. I watched this a bunch as a kid. It was one of my mother's favorite movies and I actually had the opportunity when we were working out, getting ready for this show, my mother had was visiting from Hawaii because I have mm-hmm. a new baby, and of course she wants to come see the baby. And of course. so I had the opportunity to not only rewatch this movie for the show with my mom, who I'd watched it with like a dozen times before, but I got my wife and my oldest daughter to see it for the first time as well. Oh, nice. This was one of the last movies that I got rid of on VHS before I finally mm. switched my whole collection over. So I've seen this countless times but in re-watching it there are a lot of things that didn't age particularly well in the special effects department but i still say uh-huh. i contend that the movie's soundtrack the score aged perfectly i kind of like the score i think it's definitely very noticeable 
But I think there's a lot of stuff that's coming out now that maybe isn't noticeable to us in terms of what the score is like, but that will obviously be noticeable in exactly that same way in 20, 30 years to an audience that's no longer listening regularly to that kind of music. I think it works and it's it's fun. And I think the sound ultimately actually kind of fits what's happening on the screen fairly well. It's just definitely kind of especially seeing this movie for the first time, it is just very noticeable that the music is very 80s. It does. It starts out. But then we also don't give it enough credit for no one gives it credit for the fact that near the middle-ish end of the movie, the a couple of the characters go and have a little dance off and it's actually right. set to an an Italian of a 14th century Italian tune. So they they both have like properly medieval music and properly yeah. 80s music in it at the same time. And so I think it was just really well put together. I think it, it blended it well enough. Yeah, absolutely. So we begin with uh, Philippe Gaston, or Mouse, who is uh, reassuring himself that nothing is impossible as he attempts to escape from the dungeons of the Bishop of Aquila. The dungeons are directly beneath the church, and they are just straight up executing people and hanging them on the like exterior wall of the church. It seems like just kind of executing people for fun, as is done in films set in the Middle Ages. Yeah, that, I don't know how how anyone who adheres to the medieval trope of everyone was executed for everything ever actually continued with population growth. The amount right. of executions you find in medieval movies would be almost a, apocalyptic when it comes to trying to have a, a post-medieval culture of people surviving. But also remember that this was supposedly an unescapable fortress, like that no mm-hmm. one had ever gotten out of Aquila before, like the dungeons... Not only was he getting out of the dungeons, but getting out of the dungeons was a statement against the iron-fisted authority of the bishop, because yeah, that was the, the big hammer you hung over everyone's head. You don't get out of the dungeons, and him getting out of the dungeons is a statement more than anything else. And I, I find this movie to be very tight when it comes to dialogue. They, yeah. seem to, they pile a lot of information into a couple lines here and there. And so there's a lot of things in this movie where they'll, they'll throw out a line but it's it's packaged a ton of information which allows it to pace really well. So, yeah, he's not yeah. only is he getting out of the murder dungeon, which has no reason to be a, for there to be a dungeon if you're going to murder everyone anyway. It's just that you have to like slightly space out when the murder is happened. It's like, well, we're going to murder two people and then we're going to murder another two people like 3 hours later. <laughs> so, we guess... just need to like keep these people in the dungeon for like a few hours while they wait to be murdered. I guess if you get it all over with in one one go, you have nothing else to do all day. So Right. And I don't know, maybe kind of gradually you're kind of moving people from the walls and, you know, making space. I don't know. It seems like there's maybe even too many people to like hang along that exterior wall at the moment. Yeah, because it was a fairly populated dungeon when the, the guards were going through trying yeah. to find the mouse. I think the fact that he escapes, that I think that there 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 is this emphasis, as you were saying, on the fact that this is an impregnable fortress that nobody has ever been able to get out does, I think, explain better than some other films do this sort of thing, why there is such a concerted effort to recover him, that it's very much about not him in terms of whatever he did, which I assume was probably petty theft in the first place, but the fact that he escaped and that cannot be allowed to stand. Mm-hmm. And a major motivation, because as you said, they're they're now going to go ahead and have to, have to find him. Yes. But here at this point, he's still escaping. The first interaction we have to what I will call the passive comedy of the movie. 
Yeah. So we have this whole, uh, I would say, yeah, kind of uh, comedic, but also I think really well done action scene of his uh, gradual escape, uh, which involves he uh, is kind of going through, there's like a, he's like at some point is kind of uh, at this drain, which actually leads into the cathedral and ends up basically kind of swimming out to eventually kind of get himself kind of below the city walls, essentially, as far as I can tell. First, he has to like tunnel out. Yeah. There's him in the, as you said, a well-crafted series of him. He's sitting, he's going through the, the sewers and there's like a, what is, looks like a monster in silhouette becomes just a, an old cow skull floating down the river. And right. he's, you know, he's got his little monologue and this is a great way to set up what is a enduring character trait of Mouse is not only his ability to fill up space by talking, but his constant conversations with God and with yes. his his repeated bargaining for divine favors and his witty one-liners and I think the I like the one-liners in this movie because it's not a comedy but as I said it, mm-hmm. it's passively funny so there's enough funny things in it that happen without slowing yeah. things down and being like stop the movie we have a joke you need to laugh at this beat instead of creating spaces specifically for comedy they throw these really clever things in there while other people are doing things. So you kind of had this levity that that overtones and keeps it lively and a little fresher. So I like it a lot. We have that, like like you said, in the opening scene we of the opening uh, sequence, we have this like, okay, you know that there's going to be something lighthearted in it, but they also just saw an intercut to five people being hung. So this is both right. a very serious movie that is taking itself seriously but also is not so dour and dark and drab that you're going to just slog through this gothic horror. Right. And the dungeon itself, of course, looks horrific in terms of the conditions, but you have these kind of one-liners. Uh, I do especially really enjoy that, you know, he's praying and then uh, does kind of manage to to get a break and then uh, kind of looks up the sky and says, you won't regret this, Lord. I'm a wonderful person. I, I particularly enjoyed that one. But then he almost immediately commits a crime again and says, you should already know that I was flawed or something along those lines. Right. <laughs> the bishop is very upset to hear that the prisoner has escaped and, of course, blames uh, Captain Marquet, the captain of the guard, who assures him that it would be a miracle if uh, the mouse had managed to make it through the sewage system, to which uh, another good line from the bishop who responds, I believe in miracles, Captain Marquet. It's part of my job which I uh, I appreciate the kind of slight gesture toward his sort of religiosity, uh, maybe not consistently, but occasionally. It's a great nod to what we'll find developed through most of the film in that the bishop is far more concerned with his own personal power and his yes. own political interests than he necessarily is about the default job of a priest. This is a great first look at the fact that he's not really all about the bishoping when it <laughs> when it comes to what he's about. Yeah, the care of his flock is not his highest priority. The soldiers ride off in search of Gaston, who has meanwhile managed to, uh, yeah, he steals a dagger and a purse off of one of these soldiers, runs through the woods. He's like, all right, not too far to go, <laughs> another like 350 miles, and starts talking about food. He wants some cabbage. He wants some lamb. He's, you know, a little concerned that he hears some wolves howling, but he's going to keep going. He makes it to a village and steals some clothing and some shoes. 
And then immediately as he's trying to buy a drink with his stolen purse, starts bragging about how he escaped from the dungeons of Aquila. And then, of course, the group of soldiers who just have a cloak thrown over their uniforms immediately turn around and are like, well, good luck with that. We were, you made this easy for us. <laughs> right. And, you know, cause, so Baby Broderick is clearly young and the mouse is obviously a young character. It's not like a young kid trying to play an older character. So his naivete yeah. that he's cocky and he likes to talk and he he knows he's good at what he's doing because he's the first one to have gotten out. So his bragging is entirely within character, but it, it immediately mm -hmm. just goes terribly for him. It makes you wonder, was it... Was it his thiefing skills that got him in jail, or was it his big mouth? Right. He he does talk himself into a entertaining action sequence here at the at the outdoor bar where he was trying to get himself a drink because the obviously now the guards want him and they've found him. He ends up basically getting chased on top of this uh, this kind of very nice trellis that is uh, that is above uh, the seating area, and while he's sort of there trying to avoid people stabbing him, I do appreciate that uh, Marquet kind of gives him this like slow clap for him having managed to uh, you know make it to make it that far but no further and he is rescued by the sudden appearance of first a crossbow but uh, soon we see that it is the crossbow specifically in the hands of uh, an also quite young Rutger Hauer who has arrived and uh, who you know basically kind of shows up and then hands us on the crossbow and tells him to get out of here and meanwhile he himself takes on Captain Marquet and at this point we don't know that much about this character but we do know that Marquet knows who he is he refers to him as, as Captain Navarre. Mm -hmm. Now we also see him wearing his skin tight quote armor and I guess this is the perfect yes. opportunity to talk about some of the costuming in this movie so far. One thing that I actually really enjoy about this movie up to this point is that like when he's walking through the village and he's stealing clothes and we see the guards and we see color. And that's one of those yeah. things, that's one of those tropes we find in movies where, oh, well, medieval peasants were all, they all wore brown because they were covered in dirt and they didn't have any color to their clothes. And, you know, right. one of those things that we find is in when we study actual history is that the actual color that even the medieval peasantry liked was almost so garish it's off-putting and it's mm -hmm. it's appropriate that the 80s a movie in the 80s which was had a garish color <laughs> to its fashion the likes of which i would not wear as an adult it reflects an actual it maybe not as colorful as history itself would have been but you know these these peasants that that you see in the village and you see at the outdoor tavern here they're they're wearing clothes that have a variety of colors and the guards are wearing red but then of course our hero he's wearing like all black which you know black is a color that's very difficult to achieve in medieval dyes and so it was mm -hmm. not used for you know at, in, in great quantities yeah uh, because it was just hard it wasn't hard to make black it was hard to keep black on clothes and i'm i don't know mm -hmm. the fiber arts are dying particularly well to tell you whether or not it's because of the matter or the dye or or whatever there's a, a, a huge science to dyeing. it was a, a very big thing and it's just black was not something that you would wear head to toe and then of course mm -hmm. this also kind of is one of the spots where you can really see the confusion as to if you're trying to put this into a timeline because you've right. got the you've got the bishop's guards who are wearing 
like full length surcoat style robes and armor, which is a very, you know, 11th, 12th century look. Mm -hmm. And then you've got Mouse in his peasant clothes where he's wearing, you know, uh, the equivalent of like the Boxton man outfit, which, you know, generic quote, <laughs> box standard, a 14th century peasant look. And then you've got this fairly close cut, short bodiced uniform that Navarre is wearing, which is very 15th, like late 14th, right. early, like mid 15th yeah. century doublet style clothing. So you've got like 300 years of medieval fashion mm -hmm. on scene in this one scene. Uh, when you have all three of these characters standing there, you've got from the costume alone, you can't really date this movie whatsoever. And it is very much this trope that in some ways there's this, uh, well, everything in the Middle Ages kind of is at the same time. Yeah. This, this condensing the lens down so that they take, well, I guess most people forget the word medieval refers to a thousand years of history, which definitely right. complicates things. But now, of course, you also see that no one's wearing armor that makes any sense or is of any use, really. Mm -hmm. Padded armor was a thing, and it was actually a really useful, beneficial thing. But what Navarre is wearing is effectively the base layer to what would be a suit of armor. He's got right. a, a close-fitting doublet with a, a small amount of padding on it, and he's got one pauldron on the wrong side. Based on how you'd use a sword, you know, you'd want the pauldron to be on the opposite side of the sword mm -hmm. arm. And it's not even full pauldron size. It's kind of like this little spaldery thing. Uh, he should be wearing like metal, like his base layer should be right. wearing a plate harness on top. But then all the guards are wearing what's supposed to, I think the costume designers probably was thinking male armor, like the actual riveted male armor together. Yeah, I think that's what it's supposed to be. It looks like it might actually be basically like a sweater painted silver, but Or or like pop tops stitched yeah. together. They're they're all these they look like these tiny little three millimeter by quarter inch plates that are sewn down to something. And that's right. that is not reflective of anything actually medieval. <laughs> And yeah. so no one is wearing armor that is worth the weight that it's carrying. And this crossbow, I, this crossbow is insane. It's like this double mega crossbow where it has right. literally has two bows on it and he like can shoot it twice. I mean, there were repeating crossbows in China. <laughs> Feudal Chinese repeating crossbows never made it to Europe and you right. never had two bows. You had one bow that had a repeating mechanism and a, and a box clip. The Chinese repeating crossbow is really cool, but there's no medieval equivalent whatsoever. So he's got he's got fantasy outfit and a fantasy super crossbow. And this crossbow comes up a lot and you see it all the time and it looks cool. But the props department did great things at making a really interesting looking a historical weapon. Right. There. But I do yes. like that they were using crossbows because all the names are French, but Akala is an actual place in italy and in this, italy, whole, right. this whole film was filmed in italy when you're talking about like oh, who used crossbows and who used bows most often in continental europe and through the middle ages you definitely have a leaning towards the holy roman empire and mm -hmm. france leaning towards the crossbow and the english were the ones who really championed the longbow so to see right. them using crossbows and having vaguely french names in a purportedly Italian setting 
was one of those accidentally historically authentic or at least plausible right kind of themes yeah and that's interesting and i yeah i look forward to uh talking a little bit later about some of the kind of geopolitics and yeah the things that uh as you said i'm curious as to whether anybody attempted to do any research or if they uh kind of accidentally got a few things right the fight continues uh mouse starts to run off or as navarre fights the others he of course Plot refuses to actually kill Marquet. He kills various other guards, but Marquet is left alive so he can be killed later. Mouse attempts to steal a horse, but it's uh, it's somewhat of a running theme throughout that Mouse does not know very much about how to deal with horses. That is clearly not one of his skills, is uh, clearly not working with horses. He's a city boy. Yeah, I mean, you know, as a, as yeah, as a urban-based, relatively probably impoverished person, it I think it actually is legitimate that he would not necessarily have a lot of horse skills. But also Matthew Broderick himself had no idea how to anything about horses. That makes sense. So yeah, so he tries to steal this horse and then at some point just gives up (laughs) at making the horse do what he wants to do and starts just running for it. And Navarre comes from behind him and grabs him and swings him up on the horse. We also do see the hawk who kind of flies at a few other soldiers. We'll, We'll talk more as we go on about the hawk and eventually also the wolf and the degree to which they seem to know what's going on and have semi-human intelligence while in their animal forms. We also see an asymmetry in that. It kind of comes over time. That We seem to find a lot more, like you said, a little bit of human intelligence in the hawk, which maybe that's why she's the title of the movie, than we do later on in the in the wolf. So they show up at this very humble looking hut in the woods, which uh, does does have, I think, our kind of one example of the aggressively dirty peasants. Yeah, these guys are, they're, they're dressed all in black and gray and brown and dirt. And, and instead of clothes, they effectively have like cloth wrappings tied in various places. And yeah, they're very drab. Right. They do allow them to sleep in the barn, although, you know, they they seem already kind of pretty suspicious. Navarre asks Mouse to take care of his horse, uh, who is named Goliath. And uh, I do like that he's like, let me tell you a story about a very small man named David uh, that he's uh, kind of setting up, uh, you know, I'll kind of like, oh, yeah, I feel like, you know, maybe maybe I'm the David to uh, this horse, this horse's Goliath. His very lame attempt at establishing some sort of authority over this massive Frisian which another one of those, I don't know if they did the research or if it was accidental, but the, the Frisian as a breed of horse, it being big but not overly tall with a nice deep back, was a favorite of many knights as war horses. So yeah. uh, there, there are a number of different breeds that lended themselves well. You know, that's one thing that a lot of movies right. get wrong is that they'll put a knight up on like a Clydesdale. And at some right. point, just because they're just, big. Yeah, but they're too big and you need, yeah. they also need certain like personality, Agility. temperament traits, and they have to be able to, as we later see later, be able to to learn specific dressage tricks. And mm-hmm. so the, the fact that they used a Frisian, maybe they just used a pretty black horse that was nearby, or maybe they did some research, but it's actually a very knightly horse, which is cool. Yeah. Mouse is a bit grumpy about the fact that he's kind of been pressed into service to Navarre and is complaining, oh, he's more of a slave than a comrade. I was better off in the dungeons of Aquila. My cellmate was an insane murderer, but at least he respected me. (laughs) So he is in the woods and hears the sound of something stalking him through the woods. And he starts by kind of having this conversation with a couple other imaginary people, a Louis and a Pierre. 
in order to hopefully convince if it is a uh, human stalking him that he has other people with him and is therefore, I guess, less of a obvious, you know, easy target. Then eventually just kind of is fleeing through the forest. As he arrives back, this grimy peasant comes up behind him with an axe. I guess having just decided that, I don't know, we might as well just kill these people because it's the Middle Ages and it's very violent. Then the peasant is taken down by a wolf. So this is a wolf that that I will note. The wolf very clearly takes down the peasant and does not actually bother Philippe. Now, this is actually a really interesting scene in that the peasant is the one from the little hovel that they're renting the barn out of. And it's not particularly clear as to why... And I really like that it's ambiguous. It's not particularly clear as to why the peasant is out there with the axe. Is he out there to kill these guys in their sleep who are in their barn and take all their money? Or did he also hear the wolf and he's out there protecting his whatever meager livestock there is from the wolf? So we don't know if he's there to cut mouse down the way it's shot. It's, you know, mouse sort of pops out of the woods, frightened. And then suddenly there's this man there with an axe up over his head. And is he there to protect Mouse from whatever's chasing him? Or is he there to kill Mouse? We don't know. And the the wolf makes a snap decision. And, you know, of the two people to to eat there, he eats the guy with the axe. And so, but you're right. After he's killed the man, he makes no move to... Right. And now maybe, you know, you could say, well... When we kind of get the uh, the sense that this is, there's more layers to this, but you can say, oh well, maybe he's you know he, he hasn't finished eating, so why would he go after the next guy? But this wolf that is aggressing on its own, which is already unusual if you know mm-hmm. anything about wolves, has you know killed this man and left Mouse alone. There, there's a moment of hum to that as Mouse yeah. flees to the barn in fear. Right, and he finds the crossbow and is about to shoot the wolf, but then a mysterious woman stops him from doing so. Also, he warns her that, you know, she should stay away from the wolf, but she obviously does not listen. And we do see her kind of leading the wolf calmly or walking with the wolf. So again, there is a sense that there is something strange going on here. And he seems almost more concerned. Oh, it's just funny. He seems more concerned that she's out there hanging out with the wolf than the fact that a random woman (laughs) appears in the barn and he seems to have a ton of knowledge over what's going on about them, like, how did you know that there was a wolf there or that that's what I was crossbowing at or, you know, no, who are you? Where'd you come from? No, 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 no. That's not the problem. No, that's the problem fine. is that you're going to go pet the wolf. <laughs> right. Strange women running around and showing up in barns is just completely normal. But at least but as long as you don't bother that wolf, it's like, well, that's a little weird. <laughs> So we see that Marquet is rushing back to Aquila. Navarre has his hawk and is traveling with Philippe Gaston. Gaston starts talking to him about the wolf and about this woman. Navarre says like, yeah, no, I believe you. It's fine. And asks Gaston if he knows the woman's name and says that he wishes she would wander into his dreams and then goes to sleep and tells Gaston that the bird will warn them if anyone is coming. And of course, this whole conversation Navarre's got this like knowing smile on his face because he's yeah. playing mouse to, you know, playing innocent to mouse, but he knows what's going on, which is kind of funny because he's got a very archetypical character in this movie. He's the big, strong, kind of pig headed, as we'll find later, like alpha male. You know, he's very stoic. He's pretty, you know, we later on we find that he's he does have a, a deep reservoir of emotion, but at least at this point mm-hmm. in the film, He's kind of just this big, scary, 
I took on a whole group of guards on my own figure and to see him kind of like open up a little bit and kind of like play with mouse. Like he's not just your, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously he has something he wants from mouse and we don't know what it is yet, but to transcend the fact that he is abducted mouse for his own purposes and kind of meet him on a a social level. I really liked that. I thought it was a great moment where it shows that we're not going to have a monotone character through this whole movie. Mm -hmm. And I think it is interesting because at this point in the film, for me watching it for the very first time, I don't think it's entirely clear whether this is somebody who is uh, trustworthy per se, right? That you don't really know at this point. Okay, he's clearly against the bishop and against the bishop's men. And so there's some, uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. But does that mean that he actually is a decent person in some way? Or is he just using Mouse for his own ends? And uh, because Mouse is a character through which we've been kind of introduced to the film, we're obviously supposed to be on his side. Yeah. This is, I think, maybe the kind of first moment where you sort of get a sense of maybe, all right, maybe this is somebody who we are definitely supposed to like or to be moving toward liking, at least. So I think they do that interestingly. It does help start to give the indication which we don't get until pretty much the middle of the movie is that mouse is our narrator and our interpreter but he's not our protagonist Mm -hmm. and so he is our lens with which we experience this story but he is not effectively well he's the main character he's not the protagonist and this is where we go okay this big scary clearly dangerous black clad warrior is like you said not necessarily the danger to Mouse, but he's going to be Mouse's ally, and he may very well be one of the motivating characters in this movie. This does sort of show that he's not to be feared as much by Mouse, and by virtue of Mouse, the audience. Effectively, anytime Mouse is uncertain about something, the audience is likewise has a hard time knowing exactly what's going on which is a great storytelling feature. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, and that is because, you know, he really is this kind of relatable audience surrogate kind of character. Even as we get more information about Etienne and eventually also Isabeau, they become more likable. I don't think either of them are ever particularly relatable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there is still, I think, something of a distance that we continue to have from both of them. So really the character through which we are kind of seeing these people and through which we are experiencing these events is Mouse, who, like the audience, is uh, to some extent on the sidelines of uh, what the major story actually is. Yes. This is while they're walking through the woods, and I love the scenery in this movie. There's some Mm -hmm. great establishing shots of gorgeous Italian countryside. Yeah. There's a lot of traveling in this movie, but they always seem to indicate the travel with some great panoramic view. Even if you don't know exactly how long they've been on the road, it's clear that they have moved from one location to the next and the stories progress. Mm-hmm. Back in Aquila, Marquet returns and the bishop is, uh, first of all, not thrilled to hear that Marquet does not have Gaston, but it turns out he has even worse news that uh, Navarre has returned. Akula also asks about the hawk and instructs Marquet that the hawk is not to be harmed and that if she is, Marquet will be executed. And there are all of these little moments here and there where there are these other people where I'm like, how much do you know about this situation? Because that is a weird order. Well, you also see, like you said, in the background, there's these like little altar boys and you'll get this cutaway of them like looking at each other like, the hell are they talking about? Right. Because it makes no objective sense. And is this the one in the courtyard with the dancing? I'm, I'm getting the, the scenes mixed up. Is Do we see him again where they're in the courtyard with the the dancing 
uh, there's like a performer there. Oh, that's a good question. I can't remember exactly when that scene was. This I, I think they're just it's... walking through the cloister. Because I, isn't this the one where he comes and, and it's funny how, how detached the bishop is from the real world because he, the first thing he's mad about at, at Marquet is, how dare you come to me unwashed and unshaved and not, you ha your hair is not right. brushed. And he's just so offended that this man came to him so raggedy and disheveled. And it's only when he says something about Navarre being back that the bishop's even willing to talk to him in the first place. I do appreciate that, though, as an acknowledgement that actually people did bathe and mm -hmm. that normally you would bathe and look nice before you went before somebody who is a big deal like the bishop. Right, yeah. If nothing else, high society had an expectation of cleanliness, which is something that yeah. TV doesn't necessarily always get right about the Middle Ages. But it's right. also, he's, I think he's having, at this point in the movie, there's, he's has this performer and she's in this long flowy dress and she's got her arms out and she's like doing this spinny dance. I don't know if it's intentional or not, but it kind of looks like she's got like feathers on her dress and I, is mm. she literally watching a performance of like an interpretive dance right. of a of a hawk if that is intentional then that is a huge mm -hmm. subtext to yeah. the bishop's obsession with the hawk which is then supported right. by his completely batty and nonsensical hey i know you're after the captain of the guard but i really care about this random bird right don't hurt the bird i will yeah. kill you if you hurt this bird <laughs> Which is, you know, like you said, objectively completely nonsense. Like, it's weird and makes no sense out, outside of the context of the fairy tale that's, that is erupting around this, this movie. Mm -hmm. The bishop has a lot of things to worry about. He also is complaining about the fact that there is this famine that's, like, left these people unable to pay their taxes. And so I am the real victim of this. This is another one of those data points that supports my mm. uh, idea that this is in the 1380s in that... French names, Italian setting, so sort of generic Southern Europe, kind of, it's either on the Iberian Peninsula or it's, it's in Italy. I'm, I'm fairly confident that this movie is set in Italy, despite all the confusing and unnecessarily French names to the characters. Oh, I think that actually makes sense. I'll talk about that. We'll talk about that later. Oh, perfect. But there was a famine, an actual documented famine in the 1370s, 1374, mm. 1375. It hit specifically France, Italy, and Spain. So it was a big... It was a, a Southern right. European famine, and that would have been within five, ten years. And there's, you know, an agrarian society without industrial mechanized farming can only recover from a famine so quickly. So you're mm -hmm. going to have an extended period of poverty, especially if, say, this local area was either a hit hard or you had a greedy, evil bishop who made no changes to his taxation right. policies during the actual famines and yeah and certainly yeah, i i did not look up that specific thing but uh it certainly is you know there are a lot of famines over the course of the early to getting into late 14th century uh there are a number of famines and of course it is also the case that the question of how damaging the famine is tends to depend on a combination of how wide an area it's hitting but also on what local policies are if the the king or lord or whoever is locally in charge is making a major effort to bring in grain from elsewhere, then that famine is going to be less damaging than if they're not doing that. And he seems like he's maybe not the type who would do that. No, not considering how much gold he wears. And I feel like they have very highly fantasized the clerical garments that he's wearing, which is funny because, you know, what little I do know of Ecclesiastes, 
mystical garments is that they were probably some of the more ornately embroidered and Right. And and garish and opulent things that you could find outside of royal oh, garments yes. themselves. Yeah, I mean, because they have just scenes on them. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are some yeah. that are actually like you can like follow a narrative on the outfit. Right, like almost like stained glass, but on on some as possible. So in spirit, him being dressed super fancy is plausible. I just don't think that they they did it in an authentic right. fashion. He also tells Marquet that he has had a vision from the Lord that Satan's messenger is among them and that it is Etienne of Navarre. So he's certainly trying to use this religious rhetoric to his advantage and also asks for someone named Cesar to be brought to him, who we will shortly see who that is. We return to Gaston and Navarre. Gaston is attempting to use Navarre's sword, like what, to split firewood or something, right? Right. So let's talk about this gigantic sword because... It is so large. It is such a big, stupid sword. Now, big, stupid swords existed mm-hmm. in like the 16th and 17th century. Now, large swords themselves, there's like a progression of the length of swords, both swords and armor cat and mouse you get better armor you need a better sword and so the sword forms change the the blade widths and their balance points and how flexible or how stabby or cutty they were evolved over time but and we, they were always in like the 13th 14th centuries what you would call two-handed swords but that great as tall as you with the you could see that there's like a couple extra spikes down the blade that are reminiscent of like the flamberg style where you would have to reach forward of the cross guard to manipulate the the sword and treat it more like a polearm. That style sword that they've replicated there is a 16th century version. Right. And uh, there's just a metallurgical science required to make a sword that holds up under its weight that mm-hmm. large. And the, another thing is that when you do have swords that big, there's an, an entire science or an art to fighting with a sword that big, you you treat it very much like you would a polearm, which means you mm-hmm. do not carry it in one hand and swing it around effortlessly because it's a, a 10-ounce prop like the way right. he does. He, you know, he literally rides on horseback with this thing in one hand and just sort of swish, 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 which swings it out with it, right? If it's supposedly an heirloom, which we'll also get to later, you know, th- their respect for a antique is deplorable. Right. And so we get a little bit of information about this as a family heirloom, that it has these various gems on it. One is uh, a kind of representation of his family and family name more broadly. One is representative of their alliance with the Holy Church in Rome. One is from his father in the Crusades, which uh, if we are taking a, uh, a, 13, a 1385 date, this is one of my many pet peeves is that there are not Crusades to the Holy Land after like after 1291. There's things like the, the Savoyard Crusade, but that was, you know, in the Ottoman Empire, it wasn't to the Holy Land. So maybe his right. dad went on that one in the 1360s, but I'm not sure the movie meant one of the less popular non-Jerusalem-based crusades. I think they just definitely got yeah. the timeline wrong on this one. Yeah, I mean, you know, like there's the Baltic Crusades. Uh, sometimes the uh, the term crusade is uh, the uh, kind of uh, the kind of uh, label crusade is applied to some of the fights against Muslims in the Iberian Peninsula. But, you know, when at least people now hear the Crusades, uh, the assumption tends to be these Crusades to the Holy Land and not these variety of other things that also get called Crusades or designated formally as Crusades. This seems to me like one of those things that just people kind of 
say that and don't recognize that crusading to the Holy Land is not a phenomenon that was still happening in the 14, the kind of mid to late 14th century. I mean, because I've seen a ton of movies that are very explicit about the fact that people come back from a crusade to the Holy Land and then all of a sudden it's the Black Death. Yeah, that's a little tough since uh, people don't live for hundreds of years. Right. Yeah. It's like, oh, it, it took you it took you 50 years to get back, huh? Whoops. Yeah. And of course, they also, like, they do say later on, they talk about the plague. And of course, yes. as you said, when, when people think of the plague, even though we, you know, we know that the plague cropped up constantly after it started throughout the yes. end of the medieval timeline, when people say the plague, they're talking about the great mortality from the 1350s, having the original Black Death from the 1350s doesn't actually mess the timeline up too terribly. But we'll talk about that right. when we get to talk to Cesar again. Then there's also this one gem, which is the gem which will be filled after Navarre has fulfilled his own personal quest, which is to kill the bishop. And so this is where he reveals to the mouse what he wants from him, which is that you got out of these dungeons in Aquila, you can be the one to guide me back in. <laughs> I like that Philippe Gaston is like, he's like, yeah, you think this is like your, your like mission from God? I talk to God all the time and he never mentioned you. <laughs> he never mentioned you. I love it. But so this also is like, I think he says in this in this monologue that the sword is like five generations old, which yeah. again, instead of, you know, you have a sword that's 150 years too late for the time period that is supposedly owned by someone who crafted it 100 years before you're owning right. it. It's just, there's no way that you would see this sword. It also makes me wonder, it is a young uh, Hauer, but he's clearly a middle-aged man at the time. Like, yeah. he's, you know an established mature male yeah. what what were his goals for the gem before this like did he change that it that is a good question or yeah, did, did he, he just have... wait for it to present itself i feel like by this time he should have had a firmly established gem plan but of course it is also linked in to this kind of general idea which i've seen in a couple other things about medieval knights of, well, a medieval knight, like, they have to have this, like, specific quest that is, like, their one thing that they need to accomplish in their life. And I'm like, mm, how, no. <laughs> how, how do you think that's supposed to work? <laughs> I mean, these are people who have jobs. I just want to know what he wanted to put in the gem before he was, right before this whole movie kicked off. Right, because he is, by the way, uh, he would have been, uh, uh, when the movie was filmed, he was 41 years old in terms of, mm -hmm. you know, the age of the actual actors. And that probably comports fairly well to the yeah. age of the character, which it's probably a good thing Kurt Russell didn't take the role because he Kurt Russell oh. was so much younger. Mm. So, so supposedly, yeah. from what I read on the internet, Kurt Russell was supposed to be, was, was the frontliner for Navarre. Like, up until, like, days huh. before production, Kurt Russell was Navarre, and they had approached Howard with, Marquet's position. Hmm. He did not want to be Marquet, but he said, if you ever need me to play Navarre, that's the role I'd like. Ha. And so days before production, Kurt Russell backed out for some reason. And so they were like, oh, hey, wow. you said you wanted to play this character, right? And so he literally drove his motor home from the Netherlands down to Italy and filmed this movie like on a, like a minute's notice. So. Oh, wow. It seems that despite convincing him by throwing a sword at his head, Navarre does not yeah, entirely trust Philippe. We need to put a pin in this scene, as well as a couple others, because I love how this movie adheres so closely to that old theater concept. And I can't remember the name of the guy who said it. Like, if, if in the first act there's a gun on the wall, by the third act it should have been fired. Like, this 
scene and a couple others just show how closely this movie adheres to some very basic make sure everything means something and mm -hmm. because so he throws the sword at at the mouse and obviously misses him intentionally and gets it lodged in a tree which is right. you know another point in favor of there would if you treat the sword this poorly it would never have lasted 100 years <laughs> but also swords aren't spears and it right. flies a hilariously straight line like like laser as right. as as laser straight. I mean, it's as like the, a crossbow. Oh, it's it's like a shot from a gun. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. He, I guess, despite having convinced him by throwing a sword that easily could have hit him, he manages to. He is still not entirely convinced that Philippe is not going to take off in the middle of the night when, as we will know, he is a wolf. So he ties him up, and at that point, uh, we uh, see the woman again, who is like running after a rabbit, and. Uh, Gaston tells her, oh, I was tied up by the bishop's guards. Like, the only reason they haven't killed me is because they're taking me to Akula so the bishop could do that. And she's like, oh, okay. And she unties him, and then he runs off. And then as soon as he runs off, she realizes, like, oh, shit. Yeah, so we as the audience at this time don't know why Philippe is tied up. And right. we know Philippe is a talker, and we know nothing he says is nearly ever the truth. And so he's doing this long spiel that is obviously fishy, like, yeah. And so the question here, at least the question I always had the, when I first watched it was, is he trying to endear himself to this woman? Because he's a, a young man and she's a attractive woman. And there's obviously like, he kind of like, is he trying to get her to talk to him? But this is also one of those indications where we find that uh, whoever this woman is, is clearly not a damsel in distress type character. Right. She, you know, she wears... Men's clothes, which it does two things symbolically. One, obviously, it indicates before when they were in the barn, Navarre pulls this like purple garment. This like it looks like it's made of chiffon or something. Right. But he pulls this thing out. I don't know if it's supposed to be a veil or something. And he sort of fondles it and looks off into the the sunset with a, a bit of you know consternation. But he has in his bags what looks like femi feminine items, but she is wearing mm -hmm. like a tunic shirt belted down in some, you know, tights. And she's effectively running a rabbit down by hand, which is no mean feat. And the only reason she doesn't get the rabbit is because Philippe pipes up and startles it. This character is not a set piece. This is obviously a character with some level of expertise and independence and ability to, to care for herself. But who is she? Why is she? These are things we don't know yet. Right. He does, in fact, get caught by the Aquila guards. Uh, I guess this is why you you don't, you know, say like, oh, uh, I got caught by the Aquila guards. That, of course, that's exactly what happens to him. Karma. He tells them that Navarro's ridden south, and then they're like, oh, we're going to ride north. So they're, uh, they're kind of, you know, he's like, you know, trying to, you know, he's like, God damn it. Like, why did, why, you know, I'm supposed to like be able to like lie in that or like, you know, it's like I tell the truth and that's supposed to like not help things. So Navarro has to rescue him once again. And during the fight, the hawk gets shot. They actually yeah. both get shot and they both get well, shot yes. in the same shoulder, which is interesting. I, I, right. I find that to be a nice little parallel there. Yeah. Navarro, who proves that he should have been wearing a breastplate because he takes a crossbow bolt right, right. through that, that padded gambeson <laughs> into the shoulder. So he gets hit, but he doesn't seem to care so much because he's big, bad, cool night guy, right? 
but the the bird obviously from a quarrel from a crossbow is is much worse the wear. Oh yeah, it is honestly astonishing that this bird is not dead. He sends Philippe to uh, ride to a ruined castle with a monk named Imperius to get help. Uh, we've got some more 80s music while uh, Philippe gallops off and the hawk is obviously freaking out because it's in pain. So this is where baby Broderick shows off how little he knows how to ride a horse. From what I've I read is that Hower caught wind that Broderick didn't really know how to ride a horse and had some trepidation against actually galloping off, but they needed the horse to actually gallop off for the, the right. shot. So in the scene, when you watch on scene, Navarre slaps the flanks of Goliath and the horse right. gallops off. Well, Howard actually just slapped this horse so hard that it <laughs> galloped away that they had to get in vehicles and chase after Roderick because he didn't know how to stop the horse. He just held on for his life. Oh, that's amazing. Away. Poor guy. <laughs> That's great, because yeah, it totally works with the character, too. Yeah, so he arrives at the castle. Imperius is kind of yelling down to him as he's like, I've got this bird, it's injured. Imperius's immediate response is, great, dinner. And Philippe's <laughs> like, no, we can't eat this bird. And, <laughs> the, and Imperius's response is, oh God, is it Lent already? <laughs> Which I really enjoyed. Well, yeah, it shows exactly how cloistered and hermitish this guy is. He's, you know, hauled himself up in what is clearly an abandoned castle and is completely ignorant of what day it is. I do appreciate, however, that it is accurate in the sense that you cannot eat bird on Lent. So that's nice. Yep. And that he does know that. He doesn't know if it's Lent or not, but he knows that you're not supposed <laughs> to consume bird on Lent. So at least he's a good monk. Yeah, he's trying. He doesn't know when it is, but he's doing his best. They walk into the castle and uh, Imperius, you know, basically like sends Mouse away, says, you know, he's gonna, he's gonna, you know, work on this hawk. But Mouse does manage to sneak around while Imperius is off gathering herbs and slips back inside. And look at that. Now, instead of a wounded hawk, there is a wounded lady. Mm, yeah. And surprisingly enough, coincidence, this wounded lady is the same person that we've seems to be meeting every single night over the course of this journey through the hillside. Even Mouse, who is willing to be in self-denial about what's happening, at some point has to just give in and accept that, you know, there's too many parallels here for anyone to to even be willfully denial about what's happening. Right. Back in Aquila, Cesar arrives. He is creepy. Oh yeah, I love him. Yeah, so we will get more from him in a moment. But yes, he yeah, he is filthy. I at first did not even recognize him as Alfred Molina. Yeah, not until you get that like grinning super close up of his face because yeah. he's got this huge bushy hair and the beard and he's got these like furs on him. So Mouse has figured out, all right, I keep seeing this wolf. The wolf is Navarre. There's this woman. I keep seeing this woman. The woman is the hawk. And Imperius at this point tells him what's going on, that the woman is Isabeau d'Anjou, whose father, the Count of Anjou, died slaughtering Saracens at Antioch. Did oh, he? No, Did okay. he? <laughs> Her father was a very old man, apparently. Yeah, well, I mean, that's why he obviously was felled in battle, because that's what happens when you go in there as a jack or a geriatric, I guess. <laughs> right. Well, but also, you know, he died slaughtering Saracens at Antioch. As I said, that, at the latest, would have been 1291. So mm -hmm. if this takes place in 1386, it's like, oh, your father died a century ago? Are we doing some really interesting artificial insemination here? Because uh, you don't seem to be 100 years old. Well, maybe she's just ages well, and we were not aware. There's some background mm -hmm. we're missing. 
Maybe or she's like living in hawk years. I I don't I don't oh. know, but yeah. No, I think this one we can chalk up to another one of those didn't actually do the research. Everything in medieval right. happened at the same time mistakes. Yes. They have this kind of weird conversation about how basically like, yeah, everybody is just like in love with this woman the second they see her, including like Baus and also sort of Imperius and also, of course, most importantly, the bishop. She was not into the bishop and sensed his wickedness. Uh, my editorializing is that maybe she also sensed the fact that he's a bishop. And while, of course, bishops did have affairs and concubines, etc., given her status in particular, you know, being like a bishop's concubine, given that he could never legally marry her, is like maybe not the best move anyway. Yeah, that's a step down for high nobility. Right. And it is also this in general, like, there's there's a lot in terms of just, like, various pieces of media seem to, like, forget clerical celibacy. Because it never actually gets brought up as a problem. True. But there was also, and I don't remember the timeline on it, but if I recall correctly, it wasn't baked into the beginning. It didn't celibacy get established sometime in the medieval era oh yeah but if this is 1386 it's long long established i mean it's 11th century that it's yes. 11th century it's the gregorian reform movement that is pushing okay. clerical celibacy so it's very established by this point okay perfect yeah because i i just did not know when that happened not brought up as a problem and, and sometimes i think we kind of get and i'm not one to necessarily defend medieval christianity because it has its own plenty of of problems but I do think that sometimes it can be used as the punching bag necessarily yeah. of, of like the medieval era was terrible. And, you know, they, there's a long list of those Victorian introduced the medieval world is terrible. Everyone was dirty. Everyone was filthy. Everyone was stupid. Everyone was, a, was illiterate. The one on the list is that every priest was, you know, a lascivious, corrupt individual. They either lusted for power or they lusted for women and no one was really into the religiosity that they were supposed to be and that's one of those tropes and uh, an easy punching bag and so i think that's sort of what we're falling afoul of here is right. that priestly infidelity and lack of celibacy isn't even addressed because it's kind of underwritten sort of it's taken for granted that all obviously medieval priests were bad at priesting right and i will say it is a trope that does have its origins in some way in medieval literature, right? That this was something that obviously is known to not be the ideal. It's known to not be formally acceptable, but people are aware, of course, of the fact that in practice, yes, there are priests who are not so great at the whole celibacy thing. And it is a common way that priests are mocked in medieval literature. Yeah, what was that joke? The four legs joke? The, I don't the, think I know that one. There's a book of medieval jokes and i'm pretty sure one of them the punchline is you know the the simpleton is sleeping at the foot of the bed of the bishop and asks in public you know why the bishop has four legs at night or something like that from right. underneath the, the covers yeah and so it is something that of course they're talking about in a medieval context but the way in which it gets talked about in an actual medieval text is a way that acknowledges that this isn't what things are supposed to be like, whereas it's uh, just kind of taken as a uh, universal and the norm in some ways in some of these films. Well, later on, and well, when we get to the the major exposition dump where Imperius tells and he sort of catches up Mouse on what's really going on here with the curse and such, you know, we do have an indication that the actual 
muckety mucks of the church are not okay with what the bishop has done. Yes, that we actually, it does say that he has been rejected by Rome herself. And I, I have a lot, I'll get into it a little yeah. bit later, but I have a lot of thoughts about like the overall politics of this film. Yeah, there's implications, definitely. Yes. Ennius Imperius continues, he says that Isabeau rejected him and that she was already in love with Etienne of Navarre, who was at that time the captain of the guard. And their drunk-ass confessor fucked up and revealed to the bishop that the two of them were in love with one another. The bishop lost it. Navarre and Isabeau fled, but the bishop followed and struck a bargain with Satan and cursed them, such that, as of course we've already gathered at this point, Isabeau is a bird by day and Navarre a wolf by night, so that they are always together yet eternally apart. And it was in this conversation that he said the thing about being rejected by Rome herself. I got the impression that while the bishop was hunting down and chasing after Navarre and Isabeau the first time when they first fled, that he somehow asked for aid from the Pope to get my, maybe more reinforcements, you know, head them off. Rome itself was like, look, we're not going to help you chase down a skirt like you're on your own in that. Though the now that you mentioned the, the idea that maybe he has been disenfranchised by Rome in general and it just has not caught up to him on the ground is an, is an interesting one as well. I had never considered. That's how it came off to me in terms of talking at him. At the, I mean, because the rhetoric is he's an evil man rejected by Rome herself that came off to me as not saying that he was, you know, turned down and not assisted by the Pope in this particular circumstances. The language very much struck me as a, the Pope has just, yeah, completely, like the Pope has essentially attempted to like defrock him basically and was apparently not successful, which again, I'll, I'm going to talk later more <laughs> about how I think the politics of this film ultimately don't make sense. But Right. Yeah, uh, I think the three years that these two were on the run is probably enough time for that to have caught up to him. But so we go back to Cesar, who says uh, that basically, look, he sent me to kill this one wolf. I killed a bunch of wolves. Like there's been a lot of wolves since the plague. I can't kill all of the wolves. I, I don't know what you want from me, which I kind of get. And this is where we get another layer of, okay, so the plague happened in recent memory, but none of these people seemed particularly concerned about plague on an interpersonal level. So we can assume that the great mortality was in the past enough that they're not actively concerned about getting plague, just that there's not as many people around, which you know, was a, a legitimate result of the great dying of everybody. So, you know, you've got these... This is another marker that I put on my list of reasons why, you know, when we get to 1385, it, it's perfectly plausible. And I like how in this scene, Cesar is like, look, I can't, you want me to really kill every single wolf in Italy? I mean, that's a big, tall right. order. And in this scene, the bishops, like priest words, I don't know if there's a special name for their long holy staff, but he's literally like pawing through yeah, the pelt. Right, but he's got his crozier's got like a spear point on the bottom that is then hidden right. by like a cap. So they have to like put a cap over it so it doesn't look like it's a spear. And so you, this is another thing where they're they're laying down a lot of foundation. These things happen and, and then they have a payoff. And I love how almost yeah. everything in this movie has a payoff. Yeah, this is that scene where we get the crozier with the the crozier spear, which was right. uh, an interesting little tidbit and something I know I did not notice the first time I watched it. I actually don't think I noticed that in this scene. Interesting. That's, well, that's a, that's a whole additional thing, but we'll, we'll move on. 
Yeah, you're, you're not. Bishops are not supposed to carry spears, by the way. I'll just say, like, that's not what they're supposed to do. Uh, yeah. But, well, you know, this, again, this guy is clearly not bishoping. a very good bishop. Yeah. <laughs> so the bishop does tell Cesar, basically, like, look, like, there's going to be this woman. You're, she only travels at night and look for the wolf then. Cesar is very confused. And I will say, Cesar is clearly this just kind of, like, medieval-ish villain type. And clearly we're not supposed to like him, etc., but I do kind of appreciate the fact that, like, he's just like, this is this is his job. He hunts wolves. And uh, now he's, like, getting into this whole weird situation with this, like, woman and, like, a wolf who's in love with her. And he's just like, and, like, he has this look on his face, which is just like, I feel like this is way above my pay grade. <laughs> yeah. So I need to find a woman who I fall instantly in love with when I see her. and she, But she loves the wolf, and that's the one you want me to kill. I, got yeah, it. he's okay. he's got this like I'm never going to understand, so I'm not even going to try. Look, right. So Isabel wakes up. Philippe uh, introduces himself. They talk about one another, and uh, he has this kind of whole, very lengthy and embellished version of how Navarre talked about her when she was a hawk. He's such a liar. I love how much he tells stories. About I know everything, for no reason. Like he doesn't even need to lie. He just does because that's who he is. I actually kind of liked these lies that it, this begins his process of he has a number of essentially he kind of creates his this role for himself as this go between for these two people who can't actually have a human conversation with one another. So he now then takes on this role of delivering messages, which tend to have some kernel of truth, but also a lot that is very dramatically embellished. And I kind of like it because while on the one hand, it's often seems sort of pointless. On the other hand, it's like, oh, but you're kind of making them both feel better. Well, yeah, he's he's stuck in this fairy tale. So you may as well just lean into it and create yeah. the most the romantic story that you'd read in a book. Like, well, let's if you're gonna if you're gonna be stuck in this weird crazy story, then let's make a good story out of it. Right. Yeah, I do like that a lot. And and there's a point at which you he he clearly realizes that these people are not only in true like princess bride level true love, they're also suffering horribly for it. And there's yeah. uh, there's a little bit of kindness in there where you know he clearly is growing more and more endeared to these people and you know mm -hmm. it's one way to make them feel better as you said and that yeah. that's a, a kindness that he he demonstrates because that's what he has to offer is his words like he can steal things yeah. and he and he can run his mouth he's not really good at much else so right. he may as well lean into his talents yeah so he speaks to imperius and asks imperius if they know that he's the one who betrayed them and Imperius tells Philippe that he has found a way to break the curse uh, and that Navarre can't just kill the bishop. But then the bishop's men arrive. We have, I think, another good action scene in this ruined castle where Imperius is essentially kind of taking advantage of the various design flaws or, you know, ruin flaws to uh, basically kind of kill the bishop's men. So, you know, there is a bit where he tells Philippe, you know, make sure to walk on the left. And he obviously, you know, does not give that instruction to the bishop's men who then fall and die because they walked on the wrong side of the bridge. And this is also something I see, which is interesting because this movie shows off that there is a style of making movies that is different from today in that not everyone can fight. Like today, like right. you look at like an Avengers movie and no matter who you are, you're obviously a Kung Fu master. Everyone can mm -hmm. hold their own in a fight in this Imperius makes no attempt at 
fighting the bishop's men. That's not what he does. He's he just beguiles them with living in a terrible ho- old house and <laughs> lets right. them bumble through it. Which I also really appreciate because, of course, there's zero reason in medieval reality that a monk priest would have significant military training. And especially at this point in time, for a a, a monk of of his right. caliber to have then been in a a martial combat with trained guards of any sort it would have been ridiculous and it's something that i think you might see more frequently in modern films mm-hmm. people who yeah do not need to know how to fight are able to advantage themselves based on their talents which i think is really refreshing right and i believe the evidence that we do have of monks you know having some kind of military skills are also much earlier in the middle ages right i mean yes. they're not 14th century not at all and at this point i would say yeah to the extent that you would have a monk who would have military training it would be say if you are maybe like a child of a gentry family and you started out not necessarily knowing you were going to end up being a monk and you got some kind of training when you were relatively young before you took your vows. By this point, you're right. right. There was to be very little chance that an old dodgy drunken priest would have any idea how to hold his own in a fight. I agree. Right. Philippe goes and attempts to rescue Isabeau. He ends up kind of getting her basically to the top of this tower. She falls, but fortunately it like turns into day at exactly the right moment. And she transforms as she's falling into a hawk. The sun crests over the mountains. Now we have to acknowledge that at this point they've, they have actually like administered first aid. They have, they've removed her arrow by now. By the time the Bishop's men are here, they have effectively healed her, so to speak. And it's, it is amazing how well she seems to have recovered yes. because by the by the next morning, like they they pull the arrow out and put like a, a poultice on there, and I'm I, I'm happy that they actually have Imperius go out into like the hillside and he's like plucking yeah. herbs and making a poultice, but she's better. Yeah, she's just completely better. Yeah. There's the scene before she falls off the roof where she's like literally, and I'd have to double check to see which arm it is, but I think she's literally holding on mm. to Mouse's arm and dangling from the top right. of a tower by the wounded arm. And she's like, oh, I'm slipping. Not like, oh, I have no strength in my arm because I've been stabbed. Yeah. And I feel like that's an action film trope in general, right? That yeah. people just get healed from major injuries way too quickly. Absolutely. Well, we see the same thing like when Navarre shows up later, because uh, in this very same scene where she falls and turns into the bird, Navarre suddenly pops up on a hillside and, and right. saves Philippe yet again with his crossbow. And he's perfectly fine, too. He, his crossbow yeah. bolts the shoulder yep. didn't bother him any. And he didn't even get a poultice, as far as we can tell, so... No, no, he just, I don't know, in wolf form, he rolled in the dirt, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Navarre thanks Imperius after having rescued Philippe for uh, having healed Isabeau, and Imperius says that he is the one who is grateful because he's learned how to break the curse. And so this is when he the first time gives as much of an explanation as he gives of the details of all of this, which is that in three days, the bishop is going to hear the confessions of the clergy, and at this point, they must both confront him in the flesh, and that they will then be freed, and that this is something that they can do, quote, because there will be a day without a night and a night without a day which what does that mean right they can't explain this despite the fact that this is a scientific phenomenon that people are aware of and navarro quite realistically says i have no idea what the heck that means like you are yeah, speaking it's gibberish. A meaningless statement <laughs> yeah i have a mission to uphold and you have given me nothing to, with which i need to change my quest this also is like why does imperius know specifically that this is happening in three days if he was so out of sorts that he didn't even know what month it was uh, anyway. So I feel like the implication in the film is that he got like a vision or something. 
Is it because I because there's no spot in which he like was researching through papers or looking at almanacs yeah. or so that was my sense is that would and also why would he know that that would break the curse right I mean right. especially because I mean we'll get to it but like why would just the two of them I mean it might like I could see why he might say hey you could chat with Isabeau mm-hmm. at this moment right. but why would that break the curse but he also seems to be fairly intimately aware with the details of the curse yeah they don't say he was there when the bishop makes the curse happen but he seems to be very intimately aware of that it, it was a pact with the devil and that it was and he knows all these details about the curse of they don't really tell us why he knows these things mm-hmm. and maybe that's just because imperius is uh, he he's a ashamed he's monk kind of losing who, it yeah well he's and he kind of well he's a drunkard he clearly wasn't very good at keeping secrets and he ruined people's lives and it kind of destroyed him mentally so maybe it's just all part and parcel of him being a broken man but you know, he tried to help, which is nice. Yeah. We just don't know how he came by this information. Right. If he had this information before Isabeau was brought to him, why did he make no attempt at finding Navarre? To yeah, him? also weird. But yeah, I, I just kind of chalked up the knowledge in the first place to him having gotten some kind of weird vision. I can uh, live Because with he that. does actually say, like, God told me this or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Or that, like, this shows that God has forgiven me or something like that. That was my guess, is that he thinks he's gotten, like, a message from God about this. That would make a lot of sense, because them coming back to him and him being able to save Isabeau's life, which puts them back on the path to being able to break the curse, and Navarre shows up and have a conversation with him instead of gutting him. Like, I, I saw those circumstances as, I have been redeemed, these people have come back mm-hmm. to me, I can be part of the solution... But it would very much, as you know, the divine intervention, some sort of vision, would definitely fit inside that baggage. Right, but we don't, we don't quite get that stated explicitly. I don't think. At this point, they go off, and uh, Philippe is, you know, doing his go-between thing with uh, Navarre and Isabeau. He also calls Isabeau Lady Hawk, which is the name of this film, and also which Navarre thinks <laughs> is adorable. He like I think, like I thought, it. the look on his face was excellent when he when he first hears this. Of course, if this was a Cinema Sins review, this is where we would click roll credits and the right. ding. They they do say the na- title of the movie here, which is fantastic, and yeah. he, everyone seems to love it. Like there isn't like no eye rolling, no like oh you mm-hmm. silly mouse. It was just like this is wonderful. And I, why did I yeah, not think like, about this, this in the intervening so three years? <laughs> <laughs> Philippe is trying to convince Navarre into listening to Imperius. Navarre has no interest in doing this. As he continues in his mission of go-between that evening, he basically is like running off. He's trying to steal some clothing for Isabeau while also muttering, I used to eat hawk for dinner all the time and now look where I am. But of course he's talking to her when she's in hawk form and we still don't necessarily know how much they actually remember and how right. sentient they are because we get the in, the get the impression that Isabeau kind of they appear to know who their friends from mortal life yes. are they can clearly distinguish mouse they can clearly distinguish navarre and or Isabeau on alternating night and day and so we see the hawk attack bishop's men we see the the wolf attack the axe wielding peasant but we don't ever get an indication that they actually have recollection of conversation and in fact in some of the conversation i can't remember where it is i think it's they talk about having a half-life like only living half of their life so the impression i get is that they don't it's like they go to sleep yeah so he's talking to this hawk 
you know, he's sitting there holding the hawk and it's like nipping at him. And that's when he's, he's teasing it with, you know, I used to eat a hawk every day. And of course, right. something to point out also, they used a red tail hawk, which I mm -hmm. believe is a North American bird. Yes. But I wonder if, if it's just that red tail hawks are more common in Hollywood prop houses. Yeah. And also, I mean, they had to have hawks that were presumably, I would guess, already relatively well trained prior to starting filming. Yeah. And so I. I can kind I of know. get the decision to just go with whatever, you know, well-trained hawks were available because they need the That's hawk true. to do a lot of things. I, yeah. I do love how much hawk there is. I, it's appropriate level of hawk for a Lady Hawk movie, but I, I do like that they did not shy away from using this bird as much as possible, mm -hmm. like an actual live trained bird yeah. on set. I think they probably used a couple birds. Yes, I believe they did. I, I think I actually like saw the uh, the bird casting and yes, there are there are two female red-tailed hawks, and apparently one of them is actually named Lady Hawk. Oh, good. According to Wikipedia, and also they, uh, I guess, I guess hawks live a while. They died relatively. Oh, she was actually renamed Lady Hawk at some point after the film. But yes, she died in 2007, and the other hawk died in 2014. Oh wow! Yeah, hawks apparently oh. live a long time. There you go. Yeah. So he goes and he steals a bunch of clothes and there seems to be like a party going on, but they don't go to the party. They like hide in a barn near right. where the tavern is. And there's clearly like frivolity happening inside and, and maybe even like a minstrel troupe because it's clearly mm -hmm. there's like this big wagon that he pilfers for clothes. Yeah. He does think of something that Navarre never did, which is get her a dress to wear at night. Right. <laughs> Though, of course, I actually think it is worth noting, and we talked about this a little bit before, that for the purposes of practicality, there are very good reasons she would have perhaps preferred to not necessarily wear a dress when she is ordinarily completely alone, because Navarre is a wolf, that she wants to, I think, hopefully, probably not attract a lot of attention. She wants to move quickly. There's actually no real good reason she should wear a dress. True. There's a lot of support for her trying to pass off as a boy at night. Yeah. At the end of the film, Navarre references her hair that she had cut yeah. it. Yeah. Which may be another indication that she was moonlighting as a boy the whole time. Yeah. I do definitely kind of see why she would want to maybe hopefully just kind of short hair, boy's clothing, fly under the radar, hope everybody mm -hmm. kind of thinks she's a young man, and that means there's a host of things she doesn't have to worry about. Correct. So she and Philippe are sort of chatting and bonding, and they seem to be having a nice evening. They dance, and uh, then she uh, kind of pops outside and uh, sees a wolf pelt and freaks out and then sees Cesar. Actually, Mouse convinces her for what seems to be the first time ever to actually go like hang out with other people. He not only right. gets her to dance, but he loosens her up enough to agree to go to where the minstrels are playing and like hang out at the at the bar and be like mm -hmm. let's just be normal people tonight and that's why they step outside and then of course they are confronted yeah. with a very not party face of the grungy cesar and his giant pile of freshly skinned wolf pelts right Philippe, of course, accidentally gives up the important information by referring to her by name, uh, of course, because she's the only person who possibly has that name, you know, but whatever. Uh, but so he gives that away. And so he, you know, he rides off. And uh, it's clear to the audience that it's clearly not because he is super scared of Philippe, because if you look at the two of them, why would he be? And Philippe even holds up this great sword of Navarre's as if, Yes, that, that it almost makes him less intimidating because he's 
you know, how much he's struggling to hold the thing up. Right. It's very clear. Like, you can't do anything with yeah. that, buddy. Because <laughs> when Cesar turns his back on him, he just goes, Kalk, and just drops <laughs> the the tip of the sword that he was only barely holding up in the first place. Isabel rides out kind of after him, basically. And Cesar starts laying these wolf traps. He closes some of them, basically, in order to, like, snap some of them shut, basically, in order to freak her out. She screams. We see, well, we see one wolf run out. We think that wolf is supposed to be Navarre, but I guess it's a different wolf that got trapped. And Isabeau, actually, she knows how to do things. She springs the trap onto Cesar's head, killing him. Rest in peace, Alfred Molina. And she is so dispassionate when she looks over him. And, oh, yeah. But again, like, like she sees the wolf pelts and realizes that this guy is hunting wolves. And so she, <laughs> whether or not she assumes it's the bishop or not, we, we, we sort of assume that she figures it out that the bishop is hunting wolves. And she's not content to just sit there and let Mouse figure it out or or hope Navarre is safe because Navarre is big and strong. No, she's like, at night, my job is to protect him as a wolf. And so she hops on yeah. Goliath and she goes after Cesar, which I think is amazing. Yeah, I would assume that this is not the first time she's killed somebody, whether to defend Navarre or herself. Yeah, she was. she's clearly got an edge to her that, you know, it's and she doesn't have to be like, girl, look at how tough I am. It's just like, you know, you just look at her and you go, wow, like she's been through some stuff. Yeah, I mean, because it is very practical, right? I don't think it actually has stated exactly how much time has passed, is it? I believe it was three years. Three years, okay. Okay, so this is a pretty long time that she has gone from initially being, you know, an upper class woman who probably did not initially have these kind of skills to being put in a position where every night she has to fend for herself in isolation. So it makes sense that she develops these skills and that she is kind of very practical about, you know, how this works, essentially. And so that, you know, she is, I would imagine, a very, very different person than she probably was three years before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think that was that scene did a, a wonderful job of showing that. I like how this movie spends a lot of time giving you insights into backstory without having to bog things down with mm-hmm. flashbacks. Yeah. So next morning, Navarre is dragging Philippe behind him, and uh, they uh, talk a little bit, although not in very much detail, about what happened the previous evening. The mouse definitely leaves them some omissions, uh, intentional omissions. Yes. But we do get this interesting little bit where Hawk Isabeau now especially likes a mouse, that she actually flies to him instead of uh, to Navarre initially. He's like a little bit jealous, it seems like, for a moment, but he's basically like, look, she's fantastic. I definitely am kind of into her, but she only talks about you. Yeah, he diffuses that pretty quick because, I mean, uh, not only is Navarre jealous, but we've already established that Navarre is ready to murder other suitors. And so there's this like look on mouse's face like oh no uh like <laughs> don't don't go away bird go to him not not, not me help help <laughs> you don't put me in this situation navar and he you know bonds a bit he tells him basically like he actually like there's this very sad line right that he says do you know that hawks and wolves mate for life the bishop didn't even leave us that right that he couldn't even say like all right you're both wolves now mm-hmm Imperius is followed and begs Navarre to listen to him. And Philippe's basically like, come on. I mean, you could just wait a day. What's it going to hurt? And Navarre is basically like, yeah, fuck that. Obviously, there's resentment against Imperius. Which is fair. I also got the impression that Navarre was ready to do this and is almost ready to do it today to to spite them for asking him to wait. Yeah. Because remember, Navarre is convinced that if he kills the bishop, the curse is over. 
Whereas Imperius is telling them if you kill uh, the bishop, then it's forever. The curse will never be over. The, right. And so I think he almost is he's being entrenched into his mm-hmm. into his idea of what needs to happen. Yeah, that it does very much emphasize and you know that he has this kind of insistence upon doing what it is that he wants to do and this resistance to listening to them. So Philippe decides basically that the better route is to tell Isabeau that he thinks that they can break the curse. So he and Imperius are digging this hole in the hopes of trapping Wolf Navarre in there. But instead, he falls through the weak ice into the river. And Philippe ends up having to go and rescue both him and Isabeau. Uh, this is where they are using the uh, this, this like sword as an anchor in the ice. Yeah, they stab it into the ice and tie rope around it. As if yes. It was a python. <laughs> it's like, oh God. It's so bad to the sword. <laughs> and Isabeau is clearly on board with basically like, yeah, we, we need to break this curse. I can't do this anymore. This is rough. We have this kind of brief moment where they see each other and can touch hands when they're both humans for like 35 seconds, essentially. And and this is, is where, the, this is pretty much the only spot where the movie doesn't age well. Because the special effects of yeah. them changing from wolf to bird and bo- bird to wolf, even on the tower scene where it was kind of implied, like, she was falling and then she was, like, screaming and then there was bird noises and then she flapped away mm-hmm. for, after a cutscene. In this one, they, they literally hold on each character and do a sort of a, a wipe overlay dissolve right, thing and it doesn't look great they give howard like what look more like cat eyes than wolf eyes as part of their transformation it was very heart-wrenching this is also where we get to see that you know navarre does have deep-seated well of emotion yeah and so the next day he wakes up uh, he's he's not pleased for a number of reasons uh, he's not pleased about that whole situation he's not pleased about the fact that uh, that Philippe tells him that his sword is missing and has, you know, fallen into the water and been lost forever. This like priceless family heirloom that they've been throwing around. But he sees the uh, the wolf claw marks on Philippe's chest and Imperius tells him like, yeah, he got that while he was saving your life from drowning. So, you know, maybe don't be a dick. And at this point, basically, Navarre kind of gives in to their whole plan, essentially, that he's like, all right, fine, you can you can try it your thing, sort of. I, and I don't know if it's because he's feels indebted to Mouse because of saving his life, or if, if seeing Isabeau, though it sort of was obviously overwhelming, was just enough to be like, if this is possible. Yeah. He pro- obviously, he hasn't seen Isabeau's face in years. It, right. Did seeing it would be just enough to be like, you know, just a taste of possible freedom was just enough to be like, well, okay, even if you guys are, are, are crazy and what you're saying makes no sense, what's tomorrow versus today for stabbing a man to death? You know? so, right. Yeah, you can stab a man to death any day. Even if it was, it, it was a, a rough go of it, it does convince him to try out the plan of this whole day night night thing night day which no one understands yet right they sneak into the city philippe has you know snuck in the way he came out and is getting into the cathedral that way meanwhile imperius and isabeau are sneaking in with a caged wolf which initially the guard is basically like i'll kill this wolf and then he's like you know i've never killed a wolf before and then imperius is like you know that's just what the bishop was saying but i'm sure he'll forgive you for depriving him of the pleasure he seems like a very forgiving man 
<laughs> yeah, and the and the, the the bishop's man is like, oh yeah, I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> yeah, it's like okay, that's fine. They sneak in at night. So the the big key here is that they needed Philippe to get inside because, uh, as you said, you can't get in or out of the fortress of Agala. So you have to have someone on the inside open the door for you. That is the the conceit yeah. behind this this sort of caper. They've got their their mini Ocean's Eleven scheme going on here. Right. So that, yeah, he has to get into the cathedral to open the door. They're like cathedral fortress. Uh, I have some yeah. thoughts. Navarre, meanwhile, as, uh, you know, he becomes himself again as uh, day, as night turns into day, he basically at this point is like, what the hell? You told me that if I came on this day as opposed to yesterday, we we're going to have this whole thing where it was going to be neither night nor day somehow. And Clearly, that's not how it's happened, right? Clearly, where it's just a regular day like any other. And Navarre, Navarre got high expectations because they didn't really, he didn't have much to go on. And Imperius yeah. didn't tell him that, hey, you kind of need to wait for this specific thing. This is a specific time of day. You know, he, he woke up from wolf form. Now he's inside Agala and he's expecting to see Isabeau and he isn't. And yeah. We've, we've already he's already emotionally fragile because they've sort of broken his world by making giving him a chance to see Isabeau. He's already conceded, which is clearly difficult for him to change mm-hmm. his plan. And then, you know, he feels kind of like they duped him. And it's clear that he yeah. feels duped. And this is actually why I will say in terms of Imperius not giving him a lot of information to go on. This is why my theory, again, is he hasn't done research and found and looked at almanacs and found out anything. I think he's just had some sort of weird dream vision and he doesn't actually know what they're looking for or expecting any more than anybody else because God or whoever didn't give him a ton to go on. That would explain it. Yeah, and so he believes that something is going to happen, but it's not like he has the real knowledge to be able to say, just wait, I promise that this is how it's going to happen and it's just going to like have to wait a couple hours or whatever. That's true. I, I think that's, you know, as much as this movie is tight and and puts a lot of information into a small space, this is one situation wherein if they were to have given us at least one line to explain that where he would literally said like, I don't know how to give you more information. All I had was a vision, something like that. Yeah. We would have, as the audience, a little more reason not to sort of quibble over why he's being so vague. Right. Which gives plenty of reason for Navarre to make his re- horrible request to Imperius. Yes. Yeah, that he should kill Isabeau if he fails. And that's that's real depressing. It would be worse to live a half-life than anything else. He comes from a a reasonable point of view in that if he goes to kill the bishop and he fails, I mean, he's not going to live through that. Either he's going to die in the attempt or he'll be hung. And I'm assuming he's planning based... I I kind of assume that assuming that if he does kill the bishop, but it doesn't break the curse, I kind of assume he was just going to kill himself. But that he couldn't bring himself to kill Isabeau, and so he's like, I'm going to make this guy do it. Yeah, definitely. But I, I just kind of imagine that it was kind of a, an all or nothing because I don't think he was yeah. convinced that killing the bishop was going to keep the curse there. I don't right. think he was ever convinced of that. So I think he, yeah. in his mindset, if he didn't succeed, it was because he was dead. And then yeah. now Isabeau has nothing to look forward to on the evenings. Yeah. While he, you know, probably should have consulted her <laughs> about whether or right. not she wanted to be dead. Yeah. He makes a lot of decisions for her in general. He, he is kind of a bossy dude. 
So Philippe is getting himself into the church. He uh, has kind of got into this grate, but of course it, you know, takes some effort to get up through the grate, especially if people are standing on the grate. And at some point he kind of starts like stabbing <laughs> upward through the grate at some poor guy who's standing on top of it. He's basically like, there are rats in this church. What is Ocula coming to? <laughs> I love how he's also got this like tiny little like renaissance stiletto that he's poking this guy in the foot with it looks more right. like a letter opener than anything else but yeah i love how the the guy who's standing there is like Ugh, rats gross <laughs> like, but that is really all he needs right i mean he doesn't want to do something that's going to lead them to like look down and see him no so his instrument is actually exactly sufficient for what he is trying to do which mm-hmm. is basically just to get the guy to leave so that he can come up through the grate and we, we do have to remind, this is a super tiny grate. And this has happened, this is another one of those foreshadowings. The grate that comes up through the floor into the cathedral is the same, like, super tiny square that he squeezed down through in his right. cell. So in the cell, that was one thing when they were talking to the crazy man that was his cellmate. You know, they looked down at this tiny little grate and the guard's like, well, he didn't get out that way. The crazy man said he went down there, but you couldn't even, you couldn't Clearly fit a not, human right. being down there. And then it's the same size grate that he comes up through. Yeah. And he does actually find this cathedral grate during his escape. Yes. He did come up and found himself in the cathedral and was like, oh, well, this isn't going to help me any. But he actually gets his feet stepped on <laughs> the first yeah. time around. And then now he gets to, to poke people's feet, which I thought was a nice little bookend right. there. Oh, yeah. Good, good for him. So he has to know that he's gotten out. He has to unlock the inexplicably completely barred doors of the church during mass well if we go and assume that a his country is in starved impoverished borderline revolt because he's a horrible administrator and he is possibly even in the process of being defrocked and removed by rome and he's managed to simply, by force of personality, maintain his inner sanctum of guards. Well, I mean, maybe he does want to lock himself in every single room. I could see why if it was just he was hanging out in, you know, his palace or whatever, that he would be completely barred in. It seems weird that there are all of these regular people who are attending mass and that he's locked them all in there together. No, fair point. They're, maybe they're only the people he trusts. Maybe the only people that are inside. I mean, he's, it's a, it's an invitation only mass, possibly. Right. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. It does seem really weird. It's it's clearly in service of the story more than in yes. service of the characters. And I love how the cathedral doors are. It's literally like a castle door. It's got yeah. locks and bars and bolts and of course it is guarded by literal guards. Mm-hmm. It's something that happens. You know, they're they're riding horses through Aquila and stuff and. There's always just guards just standing around yeah. in random places, and they're always holding their sword center chest as if, like, that's something that's practical for eight hours to uh, right. stand with your, your arms holding up your sword. And they're, like, random hallways. Right. Oh, there's a guard there. And, and mm-hmm. there, there's one point where there's, like, a gate and, a, like, a raised level and a bridge. And then there's, like, this little house, and there's a guard just standing on top of it, <laughs> just, like... Mm-hmm. Because he was clearly on screen, but where he was made no sense whatsoever. You know, so Navarre, of course, manages to get past the guards, right? And initially, he's just like, he's like, I'm your captain. Like, I order you to stand down. And it looks like that actually kind of works for at least a couple of people. And a couple of people he kind of shakes a sword at and, you know, Pete gets through. Well, I think it also goes to show that he was probably a good captain of the guard. And Marquette is probably a bad one. 
Yeah. So he's playing on his old loyalties, and yeah. you know, in in any regime change, you you just change all the captains and the sergeants, but you know, you, the Joe Blows might be mm-hmm. the same. And you know, here comes this opportunity for if I just happen to not stand in the way, maybe he'll kill the bad boss and I'll have a good boss again. Right. If he fails to kill the bad boss, you know, it's there's only so much that they can punish me for just not standing in the way of a man who I know would be able to kill me in a sword fight. So, Right. But it yeah. is one of those interesting moves where I think that totally makes sense, but that up until this point, all of the guards have seemed essentially cartoonishly evil. True. And so it is this kind of like quick, just very quick, like, well, at this moment, uh, we're, we're going to we're going to switch on that one. But all the guards they've encountered so far have been in the countryside, which means they are yeah. probably the ones that are less loyal because those are the ones that you kept at home because you can't trust them when they're out and about. If they are, mm. if they're Camp Navarre and it's still been a few, just a few years True. since you've had the upheaval, Marquette probably takes his guys, the ones who yeah. he knows, out with him. So I'm That's wondering fair. if maybe it's just the guys in garrison were all the ones who mm-hmm. had more loyalty to Navarre. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. He jauntily rides on into the cathedral. I love seeing that they actually use dressage. There's a bunch of different Mm. ways that you can move a horse, and dressage is an evolution of being able to use a horse in battle, teaching it to kick, teaching it to to walk sideways. And what he walks in there is is, is a display of prowess. He is showing off that he is clearly still in control of all of his martial skills and it's an intimidation tactic the thing i found much uh, kind of sillier though was the fact that they literally just like do a joust for a while yeah. uh in a way that feels very you know a performative tournament sort of thing and not a actual battle sort of thing the choreography in this especially in this fight scene looks to me like it was done by someone who ran a medieval times dinner theater show yes they're not really even jousting because they never pull out lances or anything. They're just well, yeah, they're, they're like just jousting on swords. horseback. Yeah, and I mean, you 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 can ha- hack at somebody from the back of a horse with a sword. That's not unreasonable. But uh, what unreasonable is like the only thing he decides to put on in for his final battle when it comes to protection is the most ridiculous helmet ever. Oh my god, that helmet! <laughs> and he does wear Isabeau's favorite though. From the very beginning, when yes. he pulls that piece of cloth out, he is now wearing this in this fight, which is mm-hmm. very cool. That's but no, nice. th- and and the way they ride their horses, the way they fight, the honestly, even really the way that all the guards were dressed, it was very much reminiscent of medieval times dinner theater. And yes. the helmet uh, that is a terrible helmet. It is so yeah, awful. I mean, because it has all of the visibility issues of a great helm, but with less protection. Because it's just this, like, series of greats. Right. Yeah, and so he would be wearing, uh, he should be wearing, like, if he wasn't wearing a great helm, he would be wearing a bassinet. And, you know, it would have yeah. that sort of onion top point, and it would cover your cheeks, it would cover the sides of your head, it would cover the nape of your neck, and obviously the visor would cover your face. And if you didn't right. have a visor that came below your nose, you'd have either a bever plate or you'd have a actual separate bever or something like that. You know what it reminds me of? You know those barred glasses that LMFAO wears? Yes, yes. it's those, but uh-huh. a helmet. It's yeah, so weird. Yeah, but a helmet weird. visor. It's terrible. And then they even, like, yeah, I think you put it in your notes, how they double down on how bad it is by actually putting the helmet visor on the camera for a POV yes. shot. <laughs> that we get this, like, shot through it that is just like, yeah, this is so impractical. Yeah, it's awful. Like, bar, it's actually easier to see through vertical bars than it is through horizontal right. bars. So a lot of the ocularia you see on 
visors that have slits in them, you'll see well, vertical bars. Right. And this thing is just, it's all wrong in all ways, shape, or form. But yeah, maybe it's because my aesthetics have been far too manipulated by actual medieval visuals. But it doesn't even look cool. No, I think it looks very weird, honestly. Oh, it's awful. I hated that helmet so much. Yes, the helmet was bad. Uh, as I said, the, f- the fact that like... I mean, they're just like running back and forth, sort of at each other, kind of pointing a sword in the other person's direction for like several passes. So as I said, it's like weird jousting with a sword and it makes no sense for two people who are actually in a battle trying to kill each other. And who have any idea what they're doing. I just, I don't know. I think it's great that they're riding horses around inside the cathedral. I think that's right. Because what we didn't, we didn't acknowledge that Marquette shows up in his own horse. Yeah. Like, someone says, hey, he's got a horse. And he's like, well, I have a horse, too. So. Yeah. Oh, and Marquet has the same stupid helmet, but yes, he his is gold. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, Navarre's is silver. Yes, this so is like, true. They're really doubling down on this, like, dub helmet being, like, what people are allegedly wearing in late 14th century Italy. When they finally go to ground, though, the fight improves somewhat. It, it returns. Yeah. The, the, the foot combat choreography is a whole lot less wackadoo than their horse-mounted one. And at some point, Philippe fetches his sword, which is, surprise, totally fine, and, you know, throws that at him, so he's able to finish the fight with that. The sword was wrapped up and put underneath the cart, and it seems that they, either he himself or he and Imperius together had conspired to hopefully, by removing the sword, remove some of Navarre's interest in slaying the bishop to get his gem. Right. Which I found to be kind of bizarre because, well, obviously, sure, he wants the gem. He's not really doing this for the gem. No, that he's not. But perhaps even if he wasn't doing it for the gem as his primary motivator, I, I think they were trying to give him obstacles to his original plan, yes. which would encourage him to adopt their plan. And I also think it's interesting that Philippe literally throws him his sword in the middle of the fight yep. with Marquette and then it goes almost completely ignored. Like, he never actually yeah. picks it up to fight Marquette. They just sort of fight around it. Right. And Marquette actually has no interest in picking yeah. it up, too, because there are multiple moments where Marquette's, like, right there and actually could grab it if he wanted to, and mm-hmm. he never does. No, no one goes after the sword. It just sits there. And the eclipse finally happens. Yay, That's now what we it can means get to the, for the night big to, surprise. For there to be a night without day, a day without night. So yes, yeah, so the eclipse finally happens. And this is the the final nail in the 1386 coffins. The eclipse happens, so it is now January 1st, 1386. There was an actual documented eclipse. Now, hmm. the thing about eclipses is that there are eclipses all the time. Right. But a lot of times it happens over the ocean or it happens at a very small radian in that only a narrow Mm -hmm. number of people can see it as much as there are crazy people who would disagree with us the the curvature of the earth means that not everyone can see the eclipse at the exact same time right every time there's an eclipse there's only a narrow band of places on the planet that can see it not only on january 1st 1386 was there a total eclipse Hmm. the the total eclipse tracked straight through funnily enough it tracked through where the Kingdom of Navarre used to be and right through the dead center of Italy. So when you look at the map, mm. I actually went and pulled up the map. It goes right across the north of Spain, south of France, and then it cuts across the Mediterranean, goes right through the guts of the boot where Aquila actually currently mm-hmm. is. 
and then it heads off, goes a, uh, and then goes off into Eastern Europe, and then off uh, ends across Russia somewhere. Cool. Again, I don't know if it was intentional or not, but this is the the what I would say the the closing of the crazy pinboard that 1386 is where the final battle happens. All right. I just think that's pretty cool. Yeah. That's awesome. I will yeah. I will take that as definitive proof of the uh, <laughs> January 1386 end date of the film. Yes. So anyway, they do have their eclipse, which means that both of them are human at the same time, which they lucked out because there's no real reason why they shouldn't both be a wolf and a hawk at the same time. Right. That's actually a good point. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was kind of wondering, was, like, ooh. It was a 50-50 shot. Yeah. Navarre is freaking out for a bit because Navarre seems to be under the impression for some reason that Imperius actually would have listened to him and killed Isabeau, which I don't think is accurate. He does finally, he grabs the sword that Philippe was kind enough to bring to him and he kills Marquet with that and then approaches the bishop. Mm -hmm. And the bishop's like, oh, you can't kill me, then the curse will die with me. And then Navarre's like, yeah, well, Isabeau's dead. So, but then Isabeau, very not dead, appears. I guess by confronting the bishop together, it means you just make the bishop like look at them both for a while, and that does it. Well, because now he sees them both as people. I'm guessing is what happens. Like he never wanted to see them. To, that's the whole idea behind the curse is he never wanted to see them together as people because he was so and now jealous. He has to. And now he has been confronted by them both together as people. Did he need to see them embraced or anything like that? I, he saw them physically be people, and so now they are no longer a animal and a man at the same time or an animal and a woman at the same time they're now people at the same time and so the whole idea behind his evil curse is is undone right but the curse is only broken because they did that in front of him specifically like if they yes. had an eclipse and they'd had the eclipse in the neck and hung out together in the next town over that would have been a very nice afternoon but then the curse but, would have gone back to normal uh, that is my understanding of it yes it's nice i found it a tiny bit anticlimactic as like a curse breaking moment I can see that. But, you know, it's very nice. I'm very happy for them. Yes. However, someone else is not particularly happy for them. Oh, no. The bishop is not happy. She uh, she drops her hawk leash at his, uh, at his feet. He's just infuriated. And he goes to kill her, kind of murmuring, like, no man shall. This is where the, the priest spear comes back into things. So he, he literally yes. is holding on to the device with which he's going to now stab her with. And we saw that device earlier in the in the movie. And we the scene also wraps up something else we saw earlier in the movie. In that when the bishop goes to stab Isabeau, we get our crossbow greatsword happen again. And it is only by right. javelining the sword through the bishop's chest and literally impaling him against furniture that they mm -hmm. finally defeat him. And one thing I like is that when when it's used to solve the problem at the end of the movie, if he suddenly can throw his sword, it's a little bit implausible. But when we establish mm -hmm. in a scene where it doesn't solve necessarily the conflict of the movie, it's like, oh, we don't need to know how he learned to throw a sword because in that right. earlier scene, like, okay, so We've he can throw a sword, throw whatever. Sword. Why he can do it, we don't care because it's been established. So I liked that a lot. Yeah. Same thing yeah. with why does the bishop carry a spear around? Well, we don't really know why he does, but we're already aware that he is that kind of crazy guy. Yes. I will note that's not what's normal. That's not how a crozier normally works. <laughs> no, I'm certain not. Yeah. I don't I don't go to, uh, to church often enough to know, but I'm fairly certain even in my lack of experience with churches that they typically carry around armored re religious paraphernalia. Right. 
you can yeah. you can see crochers in, in museums <laughs> as well. Um, you know, uh, they, they, they typically don't have a spear at the end just to stab everybody. Has anyone unscrewed the end cap to be sure? We'll see. We have to test them all. Yeah, so he's dead. Everybody's very happy. Navar comments on the fact that she has cut her hair. So uh, yeah, we also have confirmation that the uh, the short haircut is something that happened at some point in the last three years while she was doing her her own situation at night. I do find it a little funny that she calls him Navar and not like his first name. Right. <laughs> yeah. The thing is that at some if you had call, if she had called him Etienne at the very end, maybe people would have no idea who she was talking to because we only hear him called right. Etienne like twice in the whole movie. Yeah. So that is probably why they did it. But I just find it very amusing. It is funny. They thank Philippe and Timperius, who also basically walk off holding hands. And yeah. everybody's very happy. It's very mm-hmm. nice. A nice indication that you can have platonic physical contact amongst men. It was a nice jab at the, you know, there's nothing wrong with that at all. It's just something that yes. modern society should just probably nice. get on board with. So it was all, it was a very nice resolution. Mm-hmm. The one thing you see at the end is, you know, Philippe has this ongoing conversation with God throughout the whole thing where he's mostly talking to himself and he uses conversations with God to justify his actions. But as part of blending into the background of this cathedral scene, he puts on this white roby thing that the acolytes were wearing, the little altar boys were wearing. And no, so now he's, he's still wearing it. He's walking out with the now redeemed priest and so it yes. gives some overtones to has he reformed himself is he going to go mm-hmm. and live a non-thiefy life i mean i don't know if it necessarily assumes that he's going to become a priest but at least maybe has he moved on from that chapter right so at this point we can get into uh, some of the things the film got right and wrong and we've already talked about a few of them in terms yeah. of uh the, our costuming and our helmet and stuff i i will note that the architecture is mostly not bad well it helps that they filmed in actual castles well yeah exactly and like most of the things you see are things that you know are buildings that from the ones that i looked up and from the ones that i could just guess based on the architecture etc you know these are buildings that would have existed by 1386 there is one wall fresco at some point that i bet is also just a well the downside in filming in real buildings is that real buildings don't keep a kind of pure adherence to what they looked like when they were first built. And so there is this wall fresco that looks to me like probably 17th century, maybe late 16th. Is it the one that's in the cathedral behind the bishop? It's like a big wall painting? Yeah. Yeah. And it has, it's kind of like a floral vegetal motif. Right. Yeah. You see a lot more like geometric patterns in wall paintings of the 14th century than you do see like Obviously, there are frescoes and things, and it is Italy, so there's something to be said for that. But uh, another thing that you get into trouble with when you're filming in, in actual old buildings, and it didn't, it wasn't so bad for Imperius's castle, but a lot of times when you have a 500-year-old building, it shows 500 years of wear. But if it's right. supposed to be a 50-year-old building, you know, you see bare stone walls instead of all the whitewashing and and things mm-hmm. like which it would yeah. they would look subtly different. But it's a whole lot better than some sets that we've seen that were built to look pseudo medieval and foam right. foam masonry blocks glued to the wall kind of thing. And I did have one note on uh, Imperius's castle since this is a you know a real castle that they filmed in. It is the castle of uh, Rocca Calaccio which is in the Italian province of L'Aquila. This is, 
it's something that I often comment on the fact that you have these castles, right, that are like, it's, you know, a 10th century castle. And it's like, wow, it's the 12th century, and it's already in ruins. And I will say that this castle, while it would have been in better shape in 1386, it was left in ruins after a 1461 earthquake. Okay. So it's bad shape does go back to the Middle Ages, if not quite this, uh, that just that far. And obviously, the I don't think the castle was meant to be used in its own timeline. And it definitely did represent yeah. some old, you know, a, a ruins that he had retreated to. And it definitely mm-hmm. had that look to it. Right. So I also had some comments on geography and on local politics. I'm actually very curious to hear what you have to say about this, because this is as much as I am aware of like hierarchy and future structures and what kind of the politics of certain places should be. There's a point at which I kind of don't go much deeper than that, especially in Italy. There's a couple things that I will say actually weirdly maybe sort of make sense. The town of Aquila, which is today L'Aquila, so there's a kind of L apostrophe that's been added in front of it, but I believe it would have just been Aquila in the Middle Ages. So this is a real city in central Italy that was founded by Frederick II in around 1240, basically kind of built up out of a few villages that were already existent in the area. And the city's construction was mostly completed and it was recognized officially by uh, Conrad IV, the Holy Roman Emperor, in 1254, and then became an Episcopal see in 1257. The politics of Italy in the Middle Ages are pretty much always consistently a little bit of a mess. Well, that's because you have the whole papal states and the feudal states and the maritime states. And it was just a a whole lot of pretty much cities that were their own semi-autonomous confederacy of getting along or not getting along. It was was kind of mushy. Right. And the Holy Roman Emperor has periods of more actively being involved in Italy than than others. We, of course, have a number of... uh, kind of urban and regional conflicts in Italy between the Guelphs and the Ghibellines, the forces that are pro-papal versus pro-imperial. So uh, it's it's complicated. And of course, Italy as a country will not exist for several hundred years. Aquila is along the northern border of uh, the Kingdom of Sicily. And the Kingdom of Sicily is actually under the rule of the Counts of Anjou, for a pretty, for a substantial amount of time. So they would have taken over the control of the Kingdom of Sicily in 1286. They lose the island of Sicily in the War of the Sicilian Vespers, 1280, which is 1282 to 1302. But by the end of that, they've pretty much definitively lost control of the island, which ends up uh, being incorporated effectively into the Crown of Aragon, which uh, is my main geographical area in what is now northeastern Spain. But the Angevins, the Counts of Anjou, maintained control over the mainland part of the kingdom. They continue in practice to refer to this as the Kingdom of Sicily, even though in practice also they're referring to the southern island as the Kingdom of Sicily. So there's actually two kingdoms of Sicily, which are completely separate political entities for a while. Sometimes this kingdom in the on the mainland is referred to as the Kingdom of Naples. So, you know, there's a lot of extra complication there. But it actually does make sense that the Count of Anjou is around in 1386 in Aquila because it's part of a kingdom that is, in fact, under his rule. So they got that right, which is, I wonder, I almost feel like you'd have to have done some research to stumble accidentally on that name 
as being right. related to the local areas. Right. So I do find that impressive. And so that actually does make a lot of sense and explains in part some of the general French presence that we see in terms of names. So I'm going to try and tease out a little more about what's happening there and what does and doesn't make sense. The thing that I will note that feels a little weird is that this then means that Isabeau d'Anjou is like, because her father's dead. I'm like, is she supposed to be like the queen and nobody's noticed? Right. Or that like, is her brother the king now? And like, nobody's noticed that like, she's missing into Hawk? If she is older than her brother and her brother wants to retain power, then perhaps not knowing where she is benefits him. I mean, she would probably still, even if she's older, if it's her brother, then he would probably still be given control anyway. Until she gets married. When then there might be a fight about it, depending exactly. on exactly what the circumstances were. But certainly, like, there would be some possibility that already they'd kind of anticipated that, you know, the old, that the younger brother would probably still potentially supplant an older sister. Mm -hmm. If it's a cousin, that actually would get, that would get much, much messier. And I haven't looked up exactly who, what exactly would have been happening with kind of who's running things precisely in 1386. But her family is running things. Willful ignorance from someone could be a plausible answer to why they have not spent as much effort into right. finding her again. And, you know, clearly the bishop is politically powerful. Otherwise, he would not be able to get away with nearly as much as he has, even assuming that he didn't get away with everything. So it's also very possible that he either intimidated or coerced or convinced someone of something that they have not yet double-checked his, you know, they haven't fact-checked him. It's also plausible that the, the bishop is part of why no one's come and looked for her. Right. So that does potentially make sense in the context of the film. I will note, however, in terms of the accuracy overall, while it is not out of the norm in the Middle Ages in general for bishops to have this kind of power where they're acting as secular rulers of various territories, Aquila specifically, that does not seem to have been the case. The bishop does not seem to have been that big of a deal overall as things go in local politics. There's a city council that's quite powerful, that there are also on and off various people, including people who basically start off as something like the captain of the guards, who are effectively running things in the city. So the fact that like this guy, so it doesn't map onto anything that was happening really in Aquila, as far as I can tell. And also the fact that this bishop has managed to maintain so much power with no evident, at least in the film, support from the king of Naples slash Sicily, whatever you want to call it right now. And that he has, he's actively being opposed by the Pope. And he's having trouble with money because of the famine and yes. having overtaxed his people. It does definitely stretch the, there's, there's some criminal masterminding going on that uh, doesn't necessarily comport with reality. Right. So the political dynamics are sort of more in the realm of fantasy than reality, I think. But uh, it is interesting that we have this Anjou presence. The Kingdom of Navarre, by this date, would have actually also separately been under French rule. So that actually does make sense that he is Etienne. It makes sense that, you know, he is that he would have a French name, potentially, if he's uh, somebody who's, uh, you know, connected in some way with like the Royal House of Navarre. It's weird if he's connected with the Royal House of Navarre that he would be a random captain of the guard in Aquila if he's just from Navarre. That makes it a little bit less likely that he would have a French name, but makes it make more sense that he's basically like a mercenary who ended up as a captain of the guard in Aquila. Yeah, and especially because it's implied that his father is dead. So 
And yeah. if perhaps there was some problem with him maintaining a, a inheritance or uh, some, you know, there could have been problems with his lands back, uh, yeah. assuming he was even landed. Because again, we don't ever hear him right. called Sir. So no, we really don't know very much about him. We know very little, except that he has the ability to fight, and he has yeah. grown accustomed to telling people what to do. And both of those things don't necessarily require any actual heritage of any yeah. importance. So I think I can kind of allow that he potentially also Marquet are mercenaries that he's, you know, let's say from Nevada Marquet based on the name, I would say probably also supposed to be French. The thing that I actually find strangest is that sure people move around, but somebody like Philippe Gaston, this like random thief, it seems a little weird that if he is French, which you would think by his name, that he would have found it necessary to go quite so far from home. Right. We don't know whether or not he's from Akala right. or if he's from elsewhere and came here. And he did talk about the 300 some odd mile journey, which I'm guessing is insinuating that that's how you get outside of the bishop's authority. Right. I don't know if he has, you know, maybe he's going back to family, but you know, there that is a long just travel and we don't know yeah. why he was traveling so far from anywhere that you would have gotten reasonably given, been given a French name, both a first yeah. and a surname, to then come over to be in central right. Italy. And it's not like there aren't a lot of, you know, assuming he is from, honestly, based on the name, I would even say probably more likely to be northern France even than southern France. Mm -hmm. It's a long way to have gone. And there are a lot of cities closer to home for him, for him to have kind of lost himself in as a thief, even if maybe the city that he's from originally, he had to kind of take off from. Mm -hmm. And I, I so, wonder if just using French names made it sound European-ish to American audiences. That's my guess, yeah. The the motivating factor behind the names. And then if you pick a if you pick a theme, people won't pick apart that you have Italian names and French names and German right. names. If you go all French names, then they'll be like, "Oh, they're all sound like medieval European people." <laughs> yeah. Right. So I would assume it's probably yeah, something like that that it's just yeah, they're just they're just all vaguely French names, fine. So I, I did want to talk also, though, about the name Imperius. Oh, uh, well, I, yeah, it sounds, it sounds Latin-y, and it sounds, yeah. but that's about it. I don't know Latin, but I, I'm familiar enough to know, to have noticed in my rewatching that it was, it's not an actual Latin word. Right. But I don't know if it's an actual name. No. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so uh, it's it's not a Latin word. It's obviously related to Latin words, but it's not actually literally a real Latin word. And the only instance that I have come across of anything even close to that as a name is actually a Greek chivalric romance where Ooh. there is a central character who is referred to as Imperios uh, with an, like, transliterated with an O or even Imperios instead. So transliterated with a B and then an O. And that name is actually like, it's not a real name either exactly. It's essentially a Greek corruption of uh, the French Pierre in terms of like the chivalric, the French chivalric romance that this Greek chivalric romance was based on. Oh, well, there you go. So it was yeah. made up to sound cool. Basically. But there's a fun connection, though, in that the other central character of that chivalric romance is a princess of Naples. Oh, there you go. But not named Isabel. Yeah. No. Her name no. was Margarona. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it maybe was Marguerite originally. or I can't remember. I didn't actually write that down. But that would track. Yeah. The other thing that I will note is that 
In addition to not being a name, Imperius doesn't even really make sense to me as a name, especially for a monk, because it is a word that connotes, you know, command, power, rulership in terms of like the Latin words that Imperius sounds like at least. Mm -hmm. So it's a weird name for a monk when they're supposed to be focusing on like a obedient like obeying other people as opposed to having people obey them i found it sort of odd i've never really thought about it it just sounds different than everybody else and i wonder if that's right. the idea is that everyone else has these french names and then he's got this very different name because he does fulfill when you think about the fairy tale because this is clearly a fairy tale and when you yes. think about the fairy tale trope like he's the the fairy godmother the the wizard in the hedge he's that outsider character that they go to for specialized help. Yeah. The characters require him, but he's kind of otherworldly. And I, that name separates him from the rest of the cast in that it just sounds different. Clearly something that's not a regular person's name. Yeah. If we do get the bishop's name, I don't recall what it is. So no, I don't believe we, we never do. We never do get his name. So we assume that he yeah. probably has a Frenchy style name as well. Yeah. But yeah, so it's uh, so it's an interesting it's an interesting choice, and yeah, and I think that is really probably what it is. Is it's just a kind of essentially randomly chosen Latin-ish name meant to distinguish him. And I will just say a fun fact in terms of his uh, hermit-like experience is that there is indeed a famous hermit associated with L'Aquila who is uh, Pietro da Morone, who would be consecrated in Aquila as Pope Celestine V in 1294, before resigning three months later because he decided he liked being a hermit more than he liked being Pope. But instead of being allowed to live as a hermit in peace, the next Pope, Boniface VIII, uh, captured him, you know, worried that people would want to go back to him, captured him, and maybe or maybe not had him murdered slash maltreated him enough that he died prematurely. Oh, that's rough. But I mean, I guess yeah. it, being a hermit and living in a cell are, are more similar than necessarily having to have responsibility. Not that I'm guessing he liked right? it any better, but yeah, there are, there are worse things to happen. I mean, he wasn't then, you know, brought back from the dead for trial because popes have done some weird stuff. True. So, True. you know, he's got that going yeah. for him. Though Dante does place him in hell because he thinks it's inappropriate that he refused the papacy and also therefore paved the way for Boniface to take over because Dante hates Boniface VIII. Ooh. Oh, well, that sucks to be him, I guess. Yeah. So, yeah, according to Dante, at least, this poor guy really just wanted, he just wanted to be to left live alone. In a rock on his own, yeah. Yeah. And then they, like, bullied him into being Pope. And then they bullied him into, like, not being Pope. And then, then, then like, yeah. And then Dante's like, well, now you're in hell forever. Have a great time. Well, dang. <laughs> poor <Man>. dude. <laughs> So the next thing I wanted to chat about for the Historia at Veritas, where I talk about a real historical event, person, or phenomena, is I wanted to talk about werewolves, because yes. there are actually a lot of medieval legends about werewolves. There are. And so one thing I found interesting is if you watch the movie, and I don't know if this was meant to be an homage to lycanthropy or not, but the moon is almost, I think with the exception of one scene, if the moon is seen in, the sh in this movie, it's always full. Ah, well, that's yeah. interesting. So we have a lot of stories in particular from around the 12th century, which Carolyn Walker Bynum in her book Metamorphosis and Identity described as the werewolf renaissance of the 12th century, which is maybe one of the better phrases I've ever heard. 
Oh, I love that. Right? So this includes a couple of fun stories. So one is from uh, Gerald of Wales, who talks about this bizarre story, which is basically this priest runs across some werewolves. So the priest is just sitting around. And then it says, a wolf came up to them and immediately broke into these words, do not be afraid. They were completely astounded and in great consternation. The wolf then said some things about God that seemed reasonable and took them to his companion, a she-wolf groaning and grieving like a human being, even though her appearance was that of a beast. She requested the sacrament, and to remove all doubt, the he-wolf pulled all the skin off the she-wolf from the head down to the navel, folding it back with his paw as if it were a hand, and immediately the shape of an old woman clear to be seen appeared. Ooh, so pulling their wolf skin on and off, that's very reminiscent of, like, Selkie myths in Irish mythology. Oh, nice. So, and there are these really interesting concerns that pop up, and as the text goes on, also are kind of brought up about essentially, basically, how human these beings are. Mm -hmm. It's in part, they're kind of presented as more human because it's this skin that you can just kind of take on and off. It's not this really full transformation. And also that even as wolves, they're chatting like people, right? That Mm -hmm. it's that like the wolf like shows up and like says some things about God that seem reasonable. And they're like, okay. I mean, hey, if you're going to convince a bunch of priests that you're worth talking to, that's probably your best route. Right. But yeah, so that the wolf, even in wolf form, has this fundamental humanity. The wolfness is also, yeah, presented as a skin that you can take on and off. And it is ultimately seems reasonable to this priest that like, yeah, okay, this wolf is human enough that I can allow them to take the Eucharist. There's a story, because I'm not familiar with this story. When it comes to fairy tales, I went in in the very beginning of lockdown, I got sent home from work to work mm-hmm. remotely and my daughter was home doing school and this this school year they were far more well prepared for it but at the very end of of the previous school year they pretty right. much just like hey we we're going to email you a bunch of worksheets hope for the best right so there wasn't a lot mm-hmm. of a lot of school work for kids in the elementary school age to do and so we i, I was trying to fill up time with my daughter her girl scout troop and and stuff like yeah. that and i and I started to do what was called story time with Uncle T. Mm-hmm. And so that I did this sort of part and parcel with the Turn of Terror thing to try and do a little more pre-Disney look at fairy tales. So I went yeah. and I tried to find the oldest versions of many fairy tales we are familiar with and sort of interpret how they were originally told before they mm-hmm. became kids stories. And so, you know, like when the Little Mermaid, when she bursts into sea foam at the end and and things like that while i haven't studied fairy tales hard enough to say i've known all of them i did spend a whole lot of time reading and i didn't find any i can't think of any fairy tale that is similar to this one in that you Mm -hmm. have now we do have lots of fairy tales and a lot of mythology about people who have been transformed into things to prevent them from a goal usually a romantic goal you've got the Irish myths about the, the people being turned into swans so that they can't have relationships and things like that, but never this like wolf-hawk dichotomy. So it's no. very, this is clearly made for the movie specifically, but I find it very interesting that there is, you know, I did, I've never seen how far back lycanthropy myth goes. Do we have any indication in this time period where they were you know shedding their skins and were mostly human if this was 
like we see it now, it's mostly considered a curse. Was this a choice, or was this a lot like medieval monsters who just sort of existed that way? And it was sort of, they weren't people, they were these werewolves that happened to be people-ish. Yeah, so uh, it is, I believe, somewhat later that you tend to have this emphasis on the werewolf as being this being who completely loses human reason, essentially. Mm-hmm. That in these kind of 12, uh, at least 12th century stories, that the emphasis does tend to be on often the fact that there is still something human about them. Actually, it is interesting. It's uh, it's later, but it's also earlier that I believe Ovid actually has a kind of story, a kind of werewolf transformation story, which also kind of presents it as uh, being as kind of having this that animal-like savagery. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's really cool because knowing already that bird transformations are in mythology that, you mm-hmm. know, a, a mythology that would have been present in at uh, this time the 13 the late 1300s and to know that werewolfy versions that means that while maybe not an actual story all the elements of this fairy tale are plausibly medieval in that this has all the elements which yeah. existed as a medieval fairy tale wa- or mythology story was yeah. was contemporaneously being made that's awesome i like that yeah and the one other thing actually that i wanted to note is that there is actually a 12th century werewolf story which is actually making a distinction between different kinds of werewolves oh that's exciting the taxonomy of werewolves yeah so that it basically starts by saying this is a yes it's marie de france and she basically starts by saying that so there are these old stories that talk about werewolves and it uses the term garvalf and says that a werewolf is a savage beast while his fury is on him he eats men does much harm goes deep into the forest to live and then says, but that's enough of that for now. I want to tell you about the Bisclavre, which is a different language. It's the Breton word for a werewolf. And that werewolf is about like a nice werewolf. And it's this knight who just keeps disappearing. And his wife is like, yo, why do you just keep disappearing for three days, for three days a week? It's actually not just a full moon thing. And she says, oh, well, that's when, and he says to her, oh, well, that's when I become a werewolf. It turns out that he actually does, though, when he is a werewolf, he is able to still behave in a human-like way. Like, he runs into the king, and he, like, bows to the king, because he knows that it's the king. Huh. Oh, so nice. it's, yeah, this interesting, like, there are idea that there are different kinds of werewolves, and that some of them turn into complete savage beasts with no human reason, and others stay as these stay as these essentially kind of fundamentally human figures even if they're in animal form ah, and that does reflect a little bit what we see in this later hawk movie in that they yeah. though they are maybe kind of a blend between the two they do seem to retain some of their human principles which is nice yeah and i will note that the word lycanthropy does presumably actually come from the ovid narrative since the individual who gets transformed into a wolf is Lycaon. There we go. So yes, werewolves. So I do think it is interesting that, yeah, while this isn't telling a story that specifically was circulating in the medieval world, it is, as you said, one that the pieces of it are such that a lot of it would have, I think, made sense to a medieval audience. I like it. Yeah. So this way we can move into the Fabula Nostra section, where we talk about a film or show perhaps inspired by this one. Would you like to go first? Sure. So I find it very, like we were talking about, there's so much that goes into the backstory of this movie that 
uh, that we don't get to see a lot of. And what yeah. I would, I kind of would like to see, though I don't know if it would have, I'd struggle to figure out how to come to some sort of resolution, is I would like to see the actual story of Navarre and Isabeau being caught. And so... Mm-hmm almost kind of like the prequel and and again yeah. it's it's mostly because i i find that their relationship is established mostly through intuition like we mm-hmm. see that they are in love and we see that they care for each other and we see their devotion to each other but we don't have like we have to just trust that it's there and we don't mm-hmm. have the framework for how it was established and yeah. we, there is one scene that we didn't really talk about Right before Cesar shows up, the bishop is like in bed and he's having some sort of nightmare and there's like this mm-hmm. clicking noise and is it, and there's like shadows and it's, it's like, is he being visited by whatever demon he made the, the spirit with or is he just racked with guilt? And yeah. I would be very interested to see the story of, it's possible even that the bishop may have not been as evil before mm-hmm. and perhaps it was... Did he have a descent into madness because yeah. of his love of Isabeau? So I think that could be a really fun story as well. Yeah, definitely. Even if you took these characters, removed the the element that made it clearly a prequel, and just crafted a story about the the love triangle between a, a bishop, a captain of the guard, a noble woman, and mm-hmm. just that descent into chaos, I think that could itself make a very great movie. And yeah. instead of just being the backdrop that set up this movie. Yeah, definitely. My version is uh, much, much less uh, serious and emotionally engaging. <laughs> I really just, uh, I I often feel like I, A, want more medieval comedies. Okay. And I also tend to often feel like I want more movies that really delve into some of the weirdness of uh, the Middle Ages in ways that are often ignored as uh, and don't often show up on filmic versions of the medieval past. So really, I kind of want the semi-comedic story of these shape-shifting wolves and hawks that are just kind of wandering around, uh, perhaps in this kind of like picaresque, like just like basically a kind of series of their adventures and maybe like seeing them like, you know, try to engage in medieval religious culture in in some ways, like some wolves just popping up and trying to get a priest to allow them to take the Eucharist. So... That's that that's kind of what I want is uh, is I want something that has this kind of like engagement with some of the weird ways in which people are talking about werewolves in the medieval world as just these like what 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 do we do with them how human are they do they get to take the Eucharist you know what happens when a werewolf runs into the king that's that's kind of what I want. That would make a an ex, a really good episodic comedy. Yeah, that would be that would be great for that kind of series. Yeah, definitely. I'd watch it. So I think that'd be fun. And but this movie is, I think, uh, you know, really is really excellent overall. Which moves into the estimatio or rating section. I actually am going to give this a four out of five, which is uh, which is pretty high for me. I am uh, I tend to be a less than generous reviewer often. And I would say, you know, the only real things that I will kind of ding it on is that in the tradition of fairy tales, the politics don't really make any sense. 
and in particular don't really make any sense with the historical reality that's sort of surrounding it. And the other thing I will note is that I I do think Isabeau is an excellent character and I like her. I, in general, tend to look slightly askance at movies that can't possibly manage to include more than one female character. Well, that's true. I think the the closest thing you get to another female character is in the background, uh, but there are no other named female characters. Yeah. Yeah. So I would also give it a four out of five. And so I start from a position of five out of five purely for nostalgia purposes. It's a movie that I've grown up with and loved. A lot of the things that are entertaining to quibble about from historical authenticity standards are also ones that also fit within the realm of suspension of disbelief, especially when we're watching what is meant to be a fairy tale sort of a fantasy yeah. setting. And especially since they've actually managed to stumble upon making a lot of these things that maybe if they're not quite right, right are at least historically plausible. Yeah. What I find to be the, the biggest knock is that helmet. Right. I think I will, <laughs> I literally give it a full markdown for that helmet. <laughs> It's and bad. so, yeah, it's horrible. Even even some of the other material culture issues are not so bad as that as that helmet. I just can't get over. I just can't yeah. get over the helmet. But otherwise, I mean, I guess I'll roll the aging CGI of the the pit scene yeah. into it. But otherwise, everything else is five out of five. Yeah. And I will say, you know, I, I really enjoyed this movie. Uh, I, as I said before, this is the first time I'm watching it. I do not have any particular nostalgia, therefore, associated with it. But I think it does overall really hold up. I like the kind of fantasy setting. I think that the action sequences are really well done and are fun to watch. And they're also different from each other in a way that often I think you you have a lot of films set in the Middle Ages that have like a bunch of showpiece battles. but They kind of all look the same. True. And they don't all, with the exception of maybe the horseback part of the cathedral fight, they never go on too long. It's, there's no yeah. Lord of the Rings, Helm's Deep. This is going to be half the movie. The battle is going to take forever. They're all fights, which, you know, a historical fights tended to resolve themselves fairly quickly. So there's no huge yeah. pitched battles and, and everyone comports themselves with the exception of recovering immediately from crossbow wounds. All right. comport themselves very, relatively realistically in how yeah. there's no superhero element to it, which yeah, so I think that's well done. And I like the fact that it's a love story, but that we're kind of seeing it mostly through the lens of this figure who's a little bit kind of on the outskirts. Yeah, the, the fact that our our main character is not our protagonist. The protagonist is yeah. Isabeau and Navarre, and, and he's our interpreter, and he's our link story and our, kind of our narrator. And I, I, I like that a lot. It They did it better than, say, like 300 did it wherein the movie mm-hmm. is technically being narrated by someone who wasn't there at the end kind of thing. The story is being told to us, that that movie. And while I think this movie did it a lot better than, say, that did, even though it's the same narrative style. Right. Well, because I think in 300, you never... It does that, but you never really care about that character. And this, no. it's, you know, Mouse is not really who the, you know, the, he's kind of on the outskirts of the story, but you still actually care about him and you want him to turn out okay. Yes, he is less of a chorus and more of a character, but he's still yeah. a narrator, which I like. It, they, they did it very yeah. well. And this movie, I think, is undervalued in its storytelling because also, like I've, I've mentioned a couple of times while we've been talking, is it's very tight and yes. things, things are late, set up and pay off 
the continuity of this movie is for movie standards is fantastic. You know, they don't, oh, yeah. they don't introduce plot lines that just disappear. There's no characters that show up and then don't show up again for no particular reason. It's very tight. It is. It's a very well-constructed movie. It was clearly thought out. Yeah. Someone actually looked over the script and cared about the finished yeah. product. So. Yeah. And, you know, and there aren't any plots that seem just completely extraneous. <laughs> I, yeah, I think it's very well done. I definitely really enjoyed it. So thank you very much for introducing me to it, or at least uh, for, for getting me to watch it uh, since I had heard of, but not seen it or really known anything about it previously. Very happy to get to just share it with people who haven't experienced it yet. So I'm glad you liked it. Well, thank you for coming on. Mm-hmm. And uh, are there places where the listeners can find you on the internet? Yes. So I do all my living history stuff through the Turnip of Terror, and I kind of just use that as the same moniker for everywhere. So there's the mm-hmm. term which is kind of the central hub. Everything runs through the website. It's designed as a living history resource. So it's mostly tutorials on how to make your own garb. It's articles on living history concepts. It's resources for merchants and things like that. So people who want to get a basis for orienting themselves into doing actual living history and reenactment of the middle ages, that's what the website's for. I also have it on Facebook and the term of terror and twitter and instagram and those i have a youtube channel as well and they all sort of formulate around the same concept you know sharing news articles that are relevant to people who are doing living history impressions and sharing pictures of other living history people doing cool outfits and and activities and events and um, my videos are mostly aimed towards helping people understand living history or rather mm-hmm. understand history in a living history lens, because I don't, I don't not yeah. in a position to teach history because I don't really know it well enough. I just know that I have seen the way other people interpret history and some of it feels right. Some of it feels wrong and kind of mm-hmm. help pe- guide people down that path. And then I do technically have a podcast for the term of terror, but I don't post into it very much. I do most of my podcasting over on what's called how to medieval where Matt Blazek, who's run, he's the executive director of history live Northeast. He does a lot of Agincourt era, presentations at school and things and we do a a how-to podcast where we kind of talk about events and impressions and camp cooking and and how to effectively do the medieval thing as a hobby and i will say also you know i i always think it's really interesting to talk to people who do this kind of living history because uh I would say it's, you know, really, we have kind of like different complementary areas of expertise, right? I mean, I don't necessarily just think as much about certain things along the lines of, uh, you know, uh, what people wore and what those garments would feel like, except in a kind of very broad sense. Uh, or, you know, I know a lot about like food in terms of what people ate, but I'm not a lot about what, say, the experience of medieval cooking would be like that, you know, there's just a lot of things that you really kind of live that I, uh, you know, even as a social historian, don't often really access or experience. Yeah, so it's a lot of fun. I think there's, I like to say that that living history is pretty much our only, if you study physics long enough, you'll realize that living history is our only access to time travel. Right. You go and and you have the opportunity to kind of pretend for a moment. And and when an event goes really well and, you know, there's lose yourself and you're like, okay, well, I think I had an evening that is plausibly similar to the experience of a medieval person in this similar context. It's a really, it's a really fun feeling. And so... I enjoy it a lot and it does like you said there's there's a lot of overlap because there's an incredible amount of research that goes into making sure that what you do is authentic. You can 
Mm-hmm. You can make medi- there's a lot of people who go out and do medieval-ish stuff is what I like to say. There's yeah. Ren fairs and there's different aspects of the SCA have different levels of authenticity. There's LARPing. Mm-hmm. So you can go out there and have plenty of medieval-ish recreation, but when you try and like key in on authenticity and say, "Okay, well if if I were to take this snapshot and move it 500 years ago, would I stand out? Would someone yeah. like if I were to just like pop onto the streets of London in 1410, would like I get funny stares or would I just blend into the background? That's a really interesting mm-hmm. exercise. And I enjoy yeah. all the research that goes into to doing that. Yeah. Well, if you have enjoyed this podcast, <clears throat> please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and rate and review Media Evil on Apple Podcasts. I will read new five-star reviews in future episodes. Please also follow the podcast on Twitter at Media Evil Pod and join the Facebook group. And you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah F. Decker. And finally, if you have any questions or suggestions, I would love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. So Ari, thank you again for joining me. All right. Talk to you soon. I appreciate it. I had a lot of fun here. This was a great conversation. Definitely. And thank you all for listening to Media Evil. Bye. Matthew Broderick. Michelle Pfeiffer. Rutger Howard. Lady Hawk.